Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 194th episode of the Nauticast, titled Leap of Faith, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 6, in which Jamie dreams about Brienne, among others, and decides to rescue her from the Bloody Mummers. And what could be more romantic than getting a bear killed? You know, as a couple. Well, next time we see Jamie, he's going to have sex over the corpse of his bastard son, so he really knows how to pick out dates. He has very specific standards. I'll, I'll give him that. And we're very happy to have our special guest on for this episode. We've had her on before, so happy to have her back. Welcome, Michal, everyone. Thanks so much for coming back on. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's going to be a great one. Nothing but bangers for these middle Jamie chapters in the Storm of Swords. We're leading him out of the Riverlands with a blaze of glory here. Our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our patrons, David, who asks, Greetings, your graces. I've been thinking about what the first meeting between John and Danny will look like. What circumstances will bring them together specifically, how they will eventually react to both their family's history. But a much more pressing issue brings, brings me to my question for you today. Will Danny and Ghost get along? Bonus points on how John will react to her dragons. As always, loving your podcast and keep up the fine work. What do you think, Manu? How, how are Danny and, and John's wolf going to get along? Best friends, worst enemies, somewhere in between? Um, I think they will get along. I think animals have a sense for vibes, and I think just the Mm -hmm. vibes around, uh, I guess Drogon's vibes are maybe a little bit iffy. We're not exactly sure where he stands on burning children for food, but Ghost definitely has good doggo vibes, so I'm imagining positive things for them. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I I don't think they'll get along. I think it it might be an echo of the, uh, you know, Rob and Frey thing of just kind of not even necessarily like a personal thing but just like the vibes not going in a good direction maybe ghost will see the end coming or at least smell where this is gonna go yeah (laughs) i mean you know danny and john will have their their affection for each other and i think the animals will reflect that to a certain extent but i do think you know as john always thinks about ghost he's tied to the old gods that's what he's all about and i think I think the, the the old god side of things just reacts neg- very negatively to fire in any context. We saw that recently with the ghost of High Heart talking to Beric Dondarrion, who is about as noble of fire guy as you can be. And even for him, the ghost is like, yeah, you're not going to, the trees are not going to like you. Don't stick long around here. You're not going to have any of your, your special relore visions around here. I think ghost might, you know, maybe not react as, as, uh, outwardly harshly as gray wind does to the phrase right before the red wedding but but ghost might but ghost might have some pause he might not not be too sure of danny and that's something you know uh john you know ghost got along with egret just fine but also john sent ghost away you know when he was contemplating going over the wall and and joining the wildlings for that time so john's always had kind of a fraught relationship with ghost vis-a-vis his romantic relationships like he was trying to keep ghost in between him and egret at one point to prevent them from having sex so how that, how that ties into his relationship to Danny, I think will will be interesting. I think it'll be more more fraught than like say Shaggy Dog, which I've always had the pet theory that the way Davos gets in good with the whole crew on Skagos is that Shaggy loves him. Shaggy's you know super fierce and hunting unicorns, big and black. When he sees Davos, he'll just roll over and his tongue will come out, and that'll be that. 
Okay, I have to admit, I've been reading this question wrong all day. I thought it was about Drogon and Ghost getting along, and not Danny and Ghost. So that's well, that's an interesting (laughs) question too. I mean, that's they're such they're so different in size. It'll be like when a gorilla pets a cat, you know? Exactly. Very Uh, cute, but also like maybe get the cat out of there. Yeah. (laughs) Then I would like to change my answer to agree with McCall. I think it might be very similar to the Robin Greywind vibes. God, how did I read it as Drogon for like? 12 hours today. I've been staring at this question. It's one of those funny things because it Mm -hmm. is something that I've never really thought about, but this is one of the few things like I know is pretty much going to happen. Like this encounter is going to happen in the books as opposed to so many other things where we're kind of sure, but not really. But um, I am really curious what it will be like uh, when they meet Uh, more so Danny and John than say Danny and ghost. Um, But now, uh, I'm definitely thinking the Grey Wind uh, Rob thing with the phrase really kind of does make sense, but uh, who knows? It all depends how Danny's end plays out and what exactly Ghost is suspecting of her. Agreed. And as far as John reacting to her dragons, I think I think like everyone else, with a, a healthy dose of both awe and fear. I think I think you know he might have a little little connection with them to to indicate his his Targaryen blood, but he's gonna he's gonna have to take that very very slow. I wish I wish him luck. Yeah, I mean, because also the dragons, like, I'm just trying to imagine Drogon petting anything. I'm like, because it's, it's kind of like you either, got the you're either food or, like, just a little too big to eat for them. And mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And John also has, like, less of a leap to make. He's already seen White Walkers and corpses and all that stuff. So, like, seeing a dragon, like, yeah. I mean, for well, other people, it's like. around at some point. Like, yeah. More recently than the White Walkers, anyway. What's 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 a few hundred years to the White Walkers? <laughs> Nothing. Blink of an eye. So thank you so much to David for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F, where our sworn sword and higher uh, tier patrons get to ask us questions, along with getting bonus episodes every month, exclusive access to our regular episodes, and a bunch more benefits. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords, Jamie 6, and as it's becoming the tradition on the podcast, I turn the synopsis of the Jamie episodes of over to my illustrious co-host, since he's one of those, those uh, filthy heathen heretics who love Jamie Lannister so much. We'll forgive him for his sins by letting him have the synopsis for this, I guess. Why, that's so kind of you, my friend. So kind. <laughs> Redemption, it's just a word. So here is the recap for A Storm of Sword, Jamie 6. Though his fever lingered stubbornly, the stump was healing clean, and Kyburn said his arm was no longer in danger. Jamie was anxious to be gone, to put Harrenhal, the bloody mummers, and Brienne of Tarth all behind him. A real woman waited for him in the Red Keep. A real woman, Mr. Jamie? We gotta get you away from those turf talking points. Too much time in England, <laughs> no doubt. Mm-hmm. Jamie looks to put his time in Harrenhal at his back, but he won't be traveling alone. In a sneakily plot-important moment, Kyburn will be coming along, and his guard will be led by Steelshanks Walton. Blunt, brusque, brutal, at heart a simple soldier. Jamie had served with his sword all his life. Men like Walton would kill at their lord's command, rape when their blood was up after battle, and plunder wherever they could. But once the war was done, they would go back to their homes, trade their spears for hoes, wed their neighbors' daughters, and raise a pack of squalling children. Such men obeyed without question, but the deep malignant cruelty of the brave companions was not a part of their nature. For some reason, that reassures Jamie, but makes me feel just as icky. 
Maybe it's because I see guys like Steel Shanks all over Twitter spewing the most misogynistic bile while their profile reads, father to daughters. It's a time for departures. Not hair and hello, but hair and goodbye. The phrase marched north for the twins three days past, and now it's Jamie and Roos's turns to take leave of the keep. The trident is in flood, he told Jamie. Even at the Rue before, the crossing will be difficult. You will give my warm regards to your father. So long as you give mine to Rob Stark. That I shall. Surely the regards Jamie sends Rob will have no impact on the story. <laughs> Next up in our farewells is the Bloody Mummers, the whole lot of them. Pig, Timian, Shagwell, and Rorge. He promises them he'll be back to pay his debts, though he'll send his claims adjuster Brienne to handle the paperwork in A Feast for Crows. Two hundred men escort Jamie out of the castle, dressed as a knight once again, though a little more plainly than the gold, white, and crimson outfits Jamie is accustomed to. Among his pack and accessories is an old shield from the armory, just barely showing the old bat of Lawston from previous owners. But like Harrenhal, House Lawston has long laid dead, so no one is like to bother Jamie about brandishing their arms. He would be no one's cousin, no one's enemy, no one's sworn sword. In some, no one. Jamie suggests the speed of the King's Road, but Walton prefers the safety of game trails. Even with Steelshank's numbers, the road is perilous. Lions and wolves and bannerless brothers are still about. Best let go of any hopes of making it back to King's Landing for your bastard son's wedding, Jamie. Just like the journey to Harrenhal, Jamie is being dealt psychic damage from the memory of Lord Wentz Turney. Even the memory of a lowly miller telling him he's heading in the wrong direction sticks in his craw after all this time. Jamie recalls the day the music died. King Eris made a great show of Jamie's investiture. He said his vows before the king's pavilion, kneeling on the green grass and white armor while half the realm looked on. When Sir Gerald Hightower raised him up and put the white cloak about his shoulders, a roar went up that Jamie still remembered, all these years later. But that very night, Eris had turned sour, declaring that he had no need of seven Kingsguard here at Harrenhal. Jamie was commanded to return to King's Landing to guard the queen and little Prince Viserys, who'd remained behind. Even when the White Bull offered to take that duty himself, so Jamie might compete in Lord Wen's tourney, Eris had refused. He'll win no glory here, the king had said. He's mine now, not Tywin's. He'll serve as I see fit. I am the king, I rule, and he'll obey. My, my, this here Lannister guy <laughs> rode to tourney, win some glory, but his dreams were denied. Eh, I'll spare you the rest of my Don McLean impression, but it was in this moment Jamie realized how little he had quote-unquote earned. It made no difference if he was Arthur Dane reborn or just some jerk store with a sword. All that matters is that he was his father's heir, and Eris was able to snatch that away from the Lord of Casterly Rock. And that memory still haunted him, still gutted him. The greatest moment of his life, immediately hollowed out, to instead be assigned the wholly unimportant task of guarding an empty castle. Maybe he could have said, fuck it, and rode off to become an incestuous outlaw, but half the realm saw his investiture. The same half that will come to despise him for killing the king they all knew needed killing. Kyburn catches up with Jamie, doing his medical rounds like a good disgraced surgeon. Is your hand troubling you? The lack of my hand is troubling me. The mornings were the hardest. 
In his dreams, Jamie was a whole man, and each dawn he would lie half awake and feel his fingers move. It was a nightmare. Some part of him would whisper, refusing to believe even now, only a nightmare. But then he would open his eyes. That's not the only time Jamie was confused by his dreams. Kyburn had sent Pia to his bed last night, and it was as surreal as his right hand. Kyburn thought he was doing Jamie a solid, assuming Jamie has the same taste as most other men, as most other soldiers. Kyburn didn't quite get how committed Jamie is to the Cersei-only diet. <laughs> Guys being dudes chat continues as the topic moves to other women, Brienne of Tarth. Hote had her get a checkup too. Kyburn thankfully gives her a clean bill of health, though he doesn't think that will be lasting. Lord Selwyn Tarth offered the goat 300 gold dragons for his daughter, which is a more than fair ransom. Hell, it's probably more than Jamie's worth at this point. But Jamie's lie has come back to bite him. Hope thinks Selwyn is holding out on sapphires. Plus, the goat is the Lord of Harrenhal now, a great Lord of Westeros. Haggling is beneath him. The news irritated him, though he supposed he should have seen it coming. The lie spared you a while, wench. Be grateful for that much. For maiden heads as hard as the rest of her, the goat will break his cock trying to get in, he jested. Brienne was tough enough to survive a few rapes, Jamie judged, though if she resisted too vigorously, Varga Hope might start lopping off her hands and feet. And if he does, why should I care? I might still have a hand if she had let me have my cousin's sword without getting stupid. He had almost taken off her leg himself with that first stroke of his, but after that she had given him more than he had wanted. Hope may not know how freakish strong she is. He had best be careful, or she'll snap that skinny neck of his. And wouldn't that be sweet? Tired of Kyburn's conversation, Jamie rides up to Steelshanks. I'm sorry, dude, but my money is on Kyburn being the far more interesting conversation partner. <laughs> but I guess he's not really interested in conversation. He basically zones out after Walton mentions his dad. My father. Jamie wondered whether Lord Tywin had received the goat's demand for ransom, with or without his rotted hand. What is a swordsman worth without his sword hand? Half the golden casterly rock? Three hundred dragons? Or nothing? His father had never been unduly swayed by sentiment. Tywin Lannister's own father, Lord Titos, had once imprisoned an unruly bannerman, Lord Tarbeck. The redoubtable Lady Tarbeck responded by capturing three Lannisters, including young Stafford, whose sister was betrothed to cousin Tywin. Send back my lord in love, or these three shall answer for any harm that comes to him, she had written to Casterly Rock. Young Tywin suggested his father oblige by sending Lord Tarbeck in three pieces. Lord Tytos was a gentler sort of lion, however, so Lady Tarbeck won a few more years for her mutton-headed lord, and Stafford wed and bred and blundered on to Oxcross. But Tywin Lannister endured, eternal as Casterly Rock. And now you have a cripple for a son as well as a dwarf, my lord. How you will hate that. <sighs> Tywin Lannister, war criminal and ableist shitbag, everyone. Yet there are still people who say he's the most capable ruler in Westeros. Go figure. The party continues on, passing a burned village that also triggers Jamie's memory. He supped at the inn once, to much fanfare from the local proprietor. Staring at the ruins now, he wonders if the innkeep ever boasted about feeding the Kingslayer, or if he was too ashamed to admit it. Sadly, both innkeep and any progeny are likely dead as the village. Misliking the place, and feeling that phantom pain yet again, Jamie urges the party onward. 
They make camp off the beaten path, quite literally, and Jamie smokes an indica strain called Dreamwine to dull the pain in his stump, and to dull the pain of sleeping on a stump, arm and tree, respectively. He hoped to dream of Cersei, but, well, we don't always get what we want. Naked and alone he stood, surrounded by enemies, with stone walls all around him pressing close. The rock, he knew. He could feel the immense weight of it above his head. He was home. He was home and whole. He held his right hand up and flexed his fingers to feel the strength in them. It felt as good as sex, as good as swordplay. Four fingers and a thumb. He had dreamed that he was maimed, but it wasn't so. Relief made him dizzy. My hand. My good hand. Nothing could hurt him so long as he was whole. Dark figures closed in around him, a dozen of them with spears in hand. Silent, they prodded him down, deeper into the dark, deeper into the earth, deeper towards his doom. Swordless, Jamie is forced into the abyss, landing on the soft sand and shallow water. Is this casterly rock or some fresh horror? Your place, the voice echoed. It was a hundred voices, a thousand. The voices of all the Lannisters since Land the Clever, who'd lived at the dawn of days. But most of all, it was his father's voice, and beside Lord Tywin stood his sister, pale and beautiful, a torch burning in her hand. Joffrey was there as well, the son they'd made together, and behind him a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. Sister, why has father brought us here? Us? This is your place, brother. This is your darkness. Her torch was the only light in the cavern. Her torch was the only light in the world. She turned to go. Stay with me, Jamie pleaded. Don't leave me here alone. But they were leaving. Don't leave me in the dark. Something terrible lived down here. Give me a sword, at least. I gave you a sword, Lord Tywin said. So he did. Jamie picked it up. Nothing can hurt me so long as I have a sword. The sword caught a flame, glowing silver and blue in the darkness. But that's not the only sword to come to Jamie's defense. From behind came a great splash. Jamie whirled towards the sound, but the faint light revealed only Brienne of Tarth, her hands bound in heavy chains. I swore to keep you safe, the wench said stubbornly. I swore an oath. Naked, she raised her hands to Jamie. Sir, please, if you would be so good. The steel links parted like silk. A sword, Brienne begged, and there it was, scabbard, belt, and all. She buckled it around her thick waist. The light was so dim that Jamie could scarcely see her, though they stood a scant few feet apart. In this light, she could almost be a beauty, he thought. In this light, she could almost be a knight. Who, oh, be still my heart. George, you absolute madman, you're teaching me how to feel feelings again. Cersei lays down the gauntlet, figuratively. The fires are your life. When they are snuffed out, so are you. Jamie calls out for his sister, but she diminishes. It's just him and Brienne, two swords aflame against the encroaching darkness. She was as tall and strong as he remembered, yet it seemed to Jamie that she had more of a woman's shape now. She asked Jamie what's down in the pit. Lions? Tigers? Bears? Oh my, no, says Jamie. Only doom. They seek to leave this place, Jamie getting confused and aroused by the thoughts of Cersei and Brienne, mixing in the waters deep in his subconscious. But then they come, a man on a horse. No, many men on horses. The pale riders from Jamie's past. The shapes approach, silent and cold, 
and eyes full of judgment. Is it you, Stark? Jamie called. Come ahead. I never feared you living. I do not fear you dead. Brienne touched his heart. There are more. He saw them too. They were armored all in snow, it seemed to him, and ribbons of mist swirled back from their shoulders. The visors of their helms were closed, but Jamie Lannister did not need to look upon their faces to know them. Five had been his brothers. Oswald Went and John Derry, Lewin Martell, a Prince of Dorne, the White Bull, Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning, and beside them, crowned in mist and grief with his long hair streaming behind him, rode Rhaegar Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone, and rightful heir to the Iron Throne. Jaime remains uncowed. He remains defiant. I can take you all alone, but surely you have someone for Brienne to fight. But it's not swords, but words that the ghosts fight with, of oaths long ago spoken and long ago broken. We all swore oaths, said Arthur Dane so sadly. The shades dismounted from their ghostly horses. When they drew their long swords, it made not a sound. He was going to burn the city, Jamie said, to leave Robert only ashes. He was your king, said Derry. You swore to keep him safe, said Went. And the children, them as well, said Prince Lewin. Prince Rhaegar burned with a cold light, now white, now red, now dark. I left my wife and children in your hands. I never thought he'd hurt them. Jamie's sword was burning less brightly now. I was with the king. Killing the king, said Sir Arthur. Cutting his throat, said Prince Lewin. The king you had sworn to die for, said the white bull. The fires that ran along the blade were guttering out, and Jamie remembered what Cersei had said. No. Terror closed a hand about his throat. Then his sword went dark, and only Brienne's burned, as the ghost came rushing in. No, he said. No, 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 no. Jamie lurched awake, sweaty and damp, hot and cold, one-handed. Tears start to come. While his stomach turns over on emptiness, his mind turns over the dream. There's no place like that at Casterly Rock. He felt sick. His head pounded. He feels the strength from his dream slip away. Kyburn and Walton come to check on the feverish night. They offer him his sleeping drug of choice, but Jamie shakes them off. Resting is the last thing he means to do. Jamie looks at his bed, nay tree stump, finally taking in its pale facade under the moonlight. A werewood, like Ned Stark's heart tree, like Winterfell. It was not him, he thought. It was never him. But the stump was dead and so was Stark and so were all the others. Prince Rhaegar and Sir Arthur and the children. And Eris. Eris is dead most of all. Jamie asks Kyburn on whether he believes in ghosts. My kingdom for Kyburn saying, Best start believing in ghost stories, Lannister. You're in one, in his best Jeffrey Rush impression. But alas, the Storm of Swords predates Pirates of the Caribbean by a few years. Kyburn does recall seeing a woman once, an apparition in an empty room in an empty chair. One minute there, one minute not, with only scent and warmth to give credulity to his claims. The Archmaesters didn't care for Kyburn's ruminations on lingering souls. Well, except for Marwyn. Look, Jamie, I know you need to go say Brienne, but couldn't you have asked Kyburn a couple follow-up questions about Marwyn? The masses want to know. But Marwyn is of no interest to him. Jamie needs to get back to Heron's Great Keep and Stat. Convincing Walton to turn back is no easy feat. 
Steel Shanks is under strict orders from his liege lord, and Jamie can no longer physically impose himself on him. He wonders what his brother would do. Tyrion would find a way. Jamie will too. Turning the tables on the oft-repeated Lannister's lie idiom, Jamie threatens Walton with the blame for his fresh stump. When push comes to shove, who do you think Tywin Lannister is going to believe? His firstborn son or you? But Jamie blunts the steel with honey. Instead, I can say you saved my life, and then the reward would be more wealth than you could ever imagine. I don't know, I can imagine quite a lot. Jamie's got steel shanks on the hook. By dawn, the column was on its way back to Harrenhal. Jamie leads the pack, the Northmen struggling to keep up behind him. They reach the castle by noon, great storm clouds looming dangerously over its walls and towers. The dead castle couldn't look more dead to Jamie's eyes. He shouts for entrance, and eventually the gate is opened. The mummers still think them allies, apparently. Fools, Jamie thinks. He wheels around the courtyard trying to figure out where the commotion is coming from, but Walton is still hesitant to cross swords with the mummers. Tell your men to keep their hands on their sword hilts, and the mummers will want no trouble with you. Two to one, remember? Jamie's head jerked around at the sound of a distant roar, faint but ferocious. It echoed off the walls of Harrenhal, and the laughter swelled up like the sea. All of a sudden, he knew what was happening. Have we come too late? His stomach did a lurch, and he slammed his spurs into his horse, galloping across the outer ward, beneath an arched stone bridge, around the wailing tower, and through the flowstone yard. They had her in the bear pit. The mummers completely missed Jamie's approach, as he saddles up against the pit to see Brienne locked in mortal combat with a bear, all big and brown and covered in hair. A larger and wiser Gregor Clegane, Jamie thinks. Brienne, for her part, was holding out as best she could, given that her quote-unquote armor was the same pink dress she wore to their dinner date with Roos Bolton. Same dress, but now fresh with claw marks and Brienne's own blood. At least she has a sword, though, Jamie thinks. Nothing can harm her so long as she has a sword, he must think, not unlike in his dream. Jamie, acknowledging Hote's new station in life, courteously, courteously calls out to Lord Vargo to pull Brienne out of there. Hote's face is all bandaged up. Apparently, Brienne Mike Tyson his ear. Can we get a fuck yeah, Brienne, going in the group chat? Jamie bargains for her life, his words targeted at Hote while his eyes stay on Brienne. She gets an opening in the bear's defenses, but a bloodless strike against the bear's back reveals the horrifying truth. She's fighting with the tourney sword. Hote laughs at Jamie's realization, wine spilling from the goat's mouth. I'll pay her bloody ransom. Gold, sapphires, whatever you want. Pull her out of there. You want her? Go get her. So he did. Once again, this time with only three words, George has put me on the moon. You fucking go, Jamie Lannister. He put his good hand on the marble rail and vaulted over, rolling as he hit the sand. The bear turned at the thump, sniffing, watching this new intruder warily. Jamie scrambled to one knee. Well, what in seven hells do I do now? He filled his fist with sand. King Slayer? He heard Brienne say, astonished. Jamie. He uncoiled, flinging the sand at the bear's face. The bear mauled the air and roared like blazes. What are you doing here? Something stupid. Get behind me. He circled towards her, putting himself between Brienne and the bear. You get behind. I have the sword. A sword with no point and no edge. Get behind me. Jamie does what he can to buy time, dancing around the bear and hurling whatever ballast he can to keep it away. 
including a half-eaten mandible still swarming with maggots. Lovely. But the bear comes charging. There was a deep twang, and a feathered shaft sprouted suddenly beneath the beast's left eye. Blood and slaver ran from his open mouth, and another bolt took him in the leg. The bear roared, reared. He saw Jamie and Brienne again and lumbered toward them. More crossbows fired, the quarrels ripping through fur and flesh. At such short range, the bowmen could hardly miss. The shafts hit as hard as maces, but the bear took another step. The poor, dumb, brave brute. When the beast swiped at him, he danced aside, shouting, kicking sand. The bear turned to follow his tormentor and took another two quarrels in the back. He gave one last rumbling growl, settled back onto his haunches, stretched out on the bloodstained sand, and died. The attendant crowd is in an uproar, the mummers shouting curses and threats, and Steel Shank's men reloading their crossbows and drawing their steel. For all of Vargo Hote's bluster, he isn't a total buffoon. His men are outnumbered two to one, and infinitely more drunk than the stone-cold sober Northmen. Acquiescence is the path of least resistance. He agrees to let Brienne go in the name of mercy, in hopes that Tywin Lannister will be more forgiving. Sure, thinks Jamie. He may just have the mountain hack off three of your limbs instead of all four. That is Tywin Lannister's mercy. Back on the road, Steelshanks finally gets a chance to yell at Jamie, but our point of view is completely unbothered by this. He knew Steelshanks would do what he was ordered to do, lest Roos take out his flaying knife for fucking up his get out of jail free crowd. Steelshanks rides off in a fury while Jamie saddles up next to Brienne. Sir Jamie? Even in a soiled pink satin and torn lace, Brienne looked more like a man in a gown than a proper woman. I am grateful, but you were well away. Why come back? A dozen quips came to mind, each crueler than the one before, but Jamie only shrugged. I dreamed of you, he said. And that is A Storm of Swords, Jamie Six. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Mikal, <laughs> what did you think? I mean, it's all right. <laughs> I love this chapter. I love this chapter so much. Um, I think it's the most romantic moment in A Song of Ice and Fire, at least so far. And um, it's also a perfect encapsulation of Jamie's arc. Um, I'm, I'm one of those who is a huge sap for for the Lannister experience, however you want to characterize it. <laughs> and um, it's just, this is, this perfectly like encapsulates why this, it's so compelling to follow and so satisfying to experience. Um, you know, I mean, Jamie's chapter starts off with like, he acts like an asshole, you know, he's, he's, he thinks he's free of his better angels or, or angel singular. Um, and by the end of the chapter, he's realized that he can't leave them slash her behind um and that better angel is actually becoming a part of him it's in his dreams and his waking life um and i also just i love the little twist of like you know danny's oft-repeated mantra is like if i look back i am lost but jamie looks back and he goes back and he really he finds himself so he did i dreamed of you go hug the jamie lannister stand in your life they're probably feeling a bit emotional right now. <laughs> I would I hug guess... you if I could. <laughs> this is the other side of the coin to Jamie 5. Whereas the previous chapter was confession, Jamie 6 is the crucible. Together they form a catharsis, the climax of Jamie's storm arc, one that sets his character on a new path. 
He unburdened himself last time out, but now he must put deeds to words. And that means using his privilege and power to save Brienne, who he condemned with his last major lie. Golden Hand the Good, I can see you way down the road now, and we're coming for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I read this chapter in an 11th grade math class, and my notes have uh, Sir Jamie of the Golden Hand and Brienne the Beauty like doodled all over them. I'm swooning just hearing that. I gotta be the cynical one and come in just like, I hate this chip. <laughs> Where's Davos? No, obviously not. As iconic as Jamie 5 is... No, Tyrion, th- it bad. <laughs> it worst. Uh, uh, blonde man bad. That's how I feel about Jamie. Yeah, as, as iconic as Jamie 5 is, I think this might actually be my favorite Jamie chapter in this book. Jamie 5 is, is split right down the middle between the Mad King backstory and the dinner time with Roos. And they're both great scenes, don't get me wrong, but they kind of feel like two different chapters. There's not much, there's not much connective tissue between the two. Jamie 6 is also split up into a bunch of different scenes, but I feel like there's more connective tissue here, because the dream directly inspires the rescue at the bear pit. It's such a vivid chapter, full of memorable imagery and quotable lines, constantly leaving you wondering what's going to happen next. And like both of you are saying, it's all in service of Jamie's arc. There are hints at the big picture of the story, especially with Roos at the beginning, but this is almost entirely a chapter about character, about what it's like to be Jamie Lannister. And you see him go on this journey, obviously over the course of the whole book and the whole story, but even just within this chapter, he goes on a journey. The first half of Jamie's six is about his inner life and the man he's been. The second half is how he relates to the world around him and the man he wants to be. This chapter is where we leave Harrenhal behind for now. It's been a major setting for the last book and a half, which we've experienced through Arya and Jamie's eyes during the meet of the War of the Five Kings. Centrally located on the continent, it's the perfect center of gravity for that conflict, a burned-out husk of a castle, representative of the scorched earth left behind in the war's wake. And the men who've held or been stationed there represent the most notable war criminals of the era— Gregor Clegane, Tywin Lannister, Roose Bolton, Varga Hote, the, the exact opposite of an ideal blunt rotation. But with all respect to Stannis, the War of the Five Kings is going to wind down here after the Red and Purple Weddings, or at least move into a new phase of the conflict, with centers of gravity moving to the metropole of King's Landing and Stannis' new theater of war up at the Wall. Jamie will do a quick drive-by of Harrenhal in A Feast for Crows, but its prominence in our narrative diminishes for the near future. But this is a Jamie Lannister chapter, and it starts exactly like you'd expect, with the dig at Brienne of Tarth. Jamie is just so happy to put this all behind him and head back home where a real woman waits. I do think our point of view doth protest too much. But this isn't here by mistake. Jamie's fever dream marks a turning point for his character, very literally at one level, as he turns back around to go retrieve Brienne and kick off the next phase of his story. But to make all that more resonant, we are reminded of Jamie's starting point in this book. That Cersei is the only one that matters, that Brienne is nothing to him, etc. Maybe he even still thinks this is where his heart lies as he departs from Heron's great keep, but being, privi- but being privy to his interiority, the reader knows his heart is in conflict with itself. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that there like, are actually quite a few women who are mentioned in this chapter. But they all exist um, mostly in like varying degrees of Jamie's imagination. Um, George doesn't stage a farewell with Brienne, um, and until the climactic action, 
she's really only in his thoughts and in his dream. Um, Cersei almost appears like the least Cersei-like we've seen her in, in a, you know, in, in the series. Um, Pia shows up, she's like kind of half memory, half dream. Jamie says he's like totally out of it. Um, and then there's brief references to a Miller's daughter and the dark-eyed serving wench that are also memory and very vague. Um, and the heavy implication is that they're both dead. Um, so I think this is obviously like a subtle thing, but I think it has the effect of casting Brienne in a much more vivid light when she does show up in the flesh. Um, and it kind of makes her slot, I think, a little even closer to the the real woman who waits for Jamie because, I mean, Brienne isn't waiting for Jamie, but you know, <laughs> she shows up anyway. That's really interesting. And it, 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 yeah, it has the effect of making all the other women who show up or, or who are mentioned in this chapter feel like they are kind of inside his head, literally, when you get to the dream <laughs> sequence. But then Brienne is the one who exists outside of him. And that's in part what is so valuable about her to him is that he's she's someone he has to confront and wrestle with, sometimes literally. And otherwise, yeah, otherwise all these other figures we see in this chapter are kind of taking part in the, the in internal drama of Jamie Lannister. And as we've said before, that internal drama is is part of what makes Jamie such a, a difficult but rewarding character. He's he's just constantly lying to himself. In the same way that uh, Sandor is, but Sandor is not a POV character, so it works a little differently. We're we're in Jamie's head as he's denying his own thoughts, his own feelings. Jamie, it's just like he's been lying to other people for so long <laughs> that he's just lying to himself too. It's just turned inward. He's you can see him constantly reassuring himself, I'm okay with what's happening. I don't care. The world can go fuck itself. But if that was true, he probably wouldn't have to keep reminding himself of all that. It's like he's reading a script. He's performing a character named the Kingslayer. And that only works if it doesn't get challenged. That veneer has been cracking rapidly ever since Jamie lost his hand. Because his physical strength is not only how he kept other people at bay. It's how he kept his own feelings, his own self at bay. Now he's got time on his hands, or hand, and he can actually think about who he is and who he wants to be. And I think that's what freaks out Tywin and Cersei so much in his next chapter. That's why they think he's changed. They're not used to him thinking. He's just like me for real. <laughs> <laughs> While Brienne may not be a member of Jaime's escort, Kyburn is. He'll be in charge of keeping up Jaime's health on the journey south. In Brand 3, Emmett noted that the most significant part of the chapter was Brand's skin-changing Hodor, but amidst everything else, it's just quickly moved past and is overtaken by plot happening. Here, too, I have a similar feeling. Kyburn defecting from the Bloody Mummers to Lannister Toady is one of the most consequential occurrences in this chapter, which will really start to feel in A Feast for Crows. But here, it's just one graph, and quickly papered over it with a Jamie quip about Tywin restoring the Nada Master's chain if he can grow back his hand. Also among Jamie's guard is Steelshanks Walton, one of Lord Bolton's most trusted men-at-arms, but generally unremarkable. Jamie describes him as brusque, brutal, a simple soldier. Makes me think of that quote from Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich. His life had been most simple and most ordinary, and therefore most terrible. While a different context, George is getting into the banality of evil in these sorts of martial men, who make up a large part of the fighting force in Westeros. He'll kill, rape, and pillage, and then go home to, a, to till a field and raise some daughters. Jamie appreciates men like this, especially in contrast to the brave companions, but we the reader should interrogate this further, I think. These aren't 
the just quiet, simple men following orders. They are the very arm through which the horrors of the society are enacted. The Tywin Lannisters of this world know to keep themselves removed from the violence they order. Instead, you have men like Amory Lorge and Gregor Clegane to do all that for you. It adds a layer of deniability and removal therefrom, something we will see come to the fore in the future between Prince Oberyn and Tywin Lannister. Yeah, it's it's just occurring to me that Jamie, of course he would appreciate men like that because they're really not a threat to him. Um, they, they're, you know, whereas the bloody mummers are so unpredictable and, and you know, and in their depravity uh, that, that they could harm him. Um, but yeah, I, I also, I just kind of noted the, both the similarities and the differences in how um, Stillshanks, Walton, and the bear are described. Um, Walton is blunt, brusque, and brutal, and the bear is dumb, brave, brute, and they're, you know, obviously the brute and brutal, but the brave, I think, stands out as a as an interesting contrast. <laughs> Walton doesn't get that one. That's that's perfect. Yeah, I mean, they are, you know, they're both being framed as these these instruments of violence in the hands of more powerful people. That the bear obviously has no choice about what happens to it. And the way Jamie is describing Stillshanks Walton, it doesn't seem like he actively makes choices either, or at least that's how it seems from Jamie's perspective. And yeah, I, I love this passage. I think it, it captures something that is very, very reminiscent of real life and the way we talk about violence in real life and the way we, we frame violence as exceptional and normal. It just depends on the circumstances. Like you mentioned uh, Gregor and Amria Lorch, and Tywin uses them to commit spectacular violence, violence that's designed to stand out and grab your attention, make you afraid. Uh-oh, that's going to happen to me if I don't do what Tywin Lannister says. But the thing is, there's only so many of those guys. Like, there has to be, or they wouldn't stand <laughs> out. It's, you know, it's like a supply chain issue. We only have so many monsters in this season. <laughs> Far more common is a Steel Shanks Walton. He's not a nobleman like Gregor or Amory. He's not a mercenary like Vargo Hote and his gang. He's the ordinary soldier, like the ones Septim Nurable describes in his Broken Man speech. And remember, at the end of that speech, Maribald mentions that one of his war buddies got hanged for rape. What defines the ordinary soldier is not that they refrain from violence, it's that they compartmentalize it. Or they try to, anyway. And this is relevant to Jamie because up until recently, this is, this is kind of how he thought of himself. Like he says, he's served with these guys all his life. I'm not cruel, I just do my job. My job just happens to be killing. It's the same argument Sandor made to Sansa, all, you know, maybe from a different perspective, a different conclusion, but it's the same argument, that violence does not constitute an aberration within the status quo. Violence is the status quo. It's a way of dodging responsibility, ultimately, refusing to face the reality that the quote-unquote normal killers enable the more obviously horrible ones. Like here's Steelshanks Walton, leaving Brienne to the tender mercies of the Bloody Mummers. Why? Because Roose Bolton told him to. As Jamie says, men like this obey without question. They sound kind of like the zombies north of the wall, except that they rape when their blood is up, as Jamie puts it. The beast that stirs when you put a sword in their hands. And then, when they put the sword down, it's like it never happened, as far as they're concerned. And again, this is something I think is, is, is relevant to reality, that you have these, you have people at war or in other circumstances who see and commit horrendous violence, and then they come home, to mow the lawn and tinker in the garage and tell their kids not to fight. The reality is that the monsters of war become the guardians of peace. War criminals live next door. They vote in elections, they sit on your school board, and I think if you, you know, strapped them down and gave them truth serum and asked them to make sense of all that, they genuinely would not see any contradiction there at all. My blood was up, 
they would say. It wasn't me, or at least it doesn't feel like it was me. I don't, you know, to to touch everyone's favorite issue with Jamie Lannister, I don't really (laughs) think of Jamie's story as a redemption arc because he already did the most heroic thing he's ever going to do. He saved half a million people from being blown up. I mean, it would be hard to top that even if he wanted to. He'd have to save Bravos from being blown up, I guess. Like, that's the biggest city in Kings, you know, in Westeros. That's, that's That's the prize right there. So for me, I think about it more as a journey about identity. It's about knowing himself, reconciling his interior life with his external actions. He has to move beyond being different from the Bloody Mummers. He has to stop reassuring himself that their cruelty is not in him. Because I think that's really what he's saying when he says guys like Steel Shanks aren't cruel. I think he's, he's also talking about himself. That's what Stannis needed reassurance of, too, when he was talking to Davos. I am not a cruel man, Davos. Please tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm okay. Jamie has to do better than that and actively take action against these guys, which, of course, is what he does at the end of the chapter. So the great departure from Heron Hall begins. Anus Frey had left a few days prior for the twins, and Roose Bolton follows him now. Jamie and his retinue head south, but not before telling Roose Bolton to give his regards to Rob Stark. What? Jamie exactly knows, we can speculate, but the ultimate effect is that one of the last things Catelyn Stark hears before her ha- heart turns to stone is... Jamie Lannister sends his regards, and dollars to donuts that when we pick up with Jamie, Brienne, and Lady Stoneheart in the Winds of Winter, this line will play a big part. The funny thing is, it's pretty defensible to argue that Jamie is the least in the know about Tywin's plans and the furthest removed from the seat of power compared to, say, Tyrion and Cersei. So basically, I'm saying, Jamie Lannister, innocent. What does Tyrion tell Catelyn in the Vale? I'm as innocent as a little lamb. Shall I bleat for you? <laughs> And yeah, this is just, just great irony there, showing you how Jamie can't outrun his reputation even when he starts trying to, because no one grants him good faith. That's something I love at the end of Brienne's story in A Feast for Crows, when she's taken captive by the Brotherhood. She tells them the truth. Jamie gave her Oathkeeper to defend Sansa. You'll defend Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's steel. And they don't believe her for a second. And can you blame them? It sounds ridiculous. The Brotherhood didn't read Jamie and Brienne chapters. They don't know what they went through together. From their POV, this sounds like a bad cover story, which is exactly what Jamie thought when Brienne first told him that Renly was killed by a shadow. Now, I do think Jamie is aware that Roos is up to something. Mm-hmm. That was under the surface of their, their dinner scene in Jamie's previous chapter, like the great line in the show and when Roos says, I should send you back to Rob Stark. And Jamie says, well, instead you're watching me fail at dinner. Why might that be? <laughs> so Jamie knows there's an answer to that question. And unlike Brienne, Jamie is not remotely surprised when they hear about the Red Wedding. He tells her that, yeah, Walder Frey always envied the Tullys. And yeah, the Boltons used to skin the Starks alive. This is just, you know, the usual. This is par for the course for them. But yeah, come on, this isn't Jamie's responsibility. Like, even if he was more aware of what was going on and wanted to do something about it, what would that be? What, is he going to kill Roos with his offhand and then ride to the twins and kill all the Freys also with his offhand? Ultimately, it's, it's guilt by association. It's the assumption of bad faith. And Jamie knows all about that. It happened with Ned Stark on the day he became the Kingslayer. Jamie's next set of goodbyes are to his beloved friends, the Bloody Mummers. <laughs> he gives them sardonic farewells, letting them know he'll be back. A Lannister pays his debts. What I love about this is that it will be Brienne who comes to collect on Pig and Timian and Shagwell and Rorge. Feels appropriate, especially when those debts are collected on the edge of Oathkeeper, Jamie's gift to Brienne to help him fulfill his oath to Catelyn Stark. 
Of course, Jamie can't go backpacking through the Riverlands before getting fitted out at REI, so (laughs) Roose Bolton preps Jamie as a knight for his hike back to King's Landing. Enough so Jamie doesn't stick out as the highly prized hostage that he is, so that he can be no one. An explicit parallel to Arya, but also the opposite of Jamie's entire being. He's always been someone, whether son and heir of Tywin, the youngest member of the Kingsguard, and most of all, the Kingslayer. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me that Jamie's attempt at anonymity here is like a total wash. Like it, it you know, to paraphrase a Broadway classic, who cares what he's wearing? Um, <laughs> on the inside, it's, it's, it's pure Jamie. Uh, even the landscape around him is kind of marked with the Jaminess of it. It's the memories of the path that led to the action that branded him with the different name. Um, you know, which is appropriate if we see Jamie's arc, like like you said, Emmett. I think that's that's accurate at least in well it's hard, I don't know it's hard to say it's very hard for me to categorize exactly what Jamie's arc is but I think True. I guess that's the point mm-hmm. yeah right <laughs> um it, reconciliation is definitely a huge part of it um and coming to terms with his true self beneath the shattering shell of his former identity um yeah it's like gold armor white armor Lannister lion Lofton shields uh, right now, none of that represents who Jamie truly is, and he's kind of starting to realize that himself. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, as the saying goes, no matter where you go, there you are. Like, Jamie can't get away from himself. He can't get away from his own thoughts, his own inner life. That's, you know, and that that's can be really painful if you hate yourself. And Jamie pretty clearly hates himself. And I think what he wants, even more than anonymity, he wants rebirth. He wants a blank slate. He wants the glory days ahead of him instead of behind. That's how his POV chapter started in this book, riding along in the boat, blinking in the sun like a newborn baby, released from his cell as if from a womb. Same imagery with uh, with Jamie 5 when he was in the bathtub. We talked about how that, that kind of felt like a baptism imagery going on there. Jamie wants to start over, which to be fair is one of the most universal human feelings, right up there with the desire to conquer death. And those are basically the same thing. It's a sense that your life is a prison, a curse. And the only enemy that matters is the only one you can't defeat. Time. Jamie can't change the past and everything that goes with it. All he can do is shape the future. Which is where his POV chapters end in this book. That perfect ending to his story with his pen poised over a blank page. Wondering what comes next. And George was probably the one wondering the same thing at that point. <laughs> the most notable of Jamie's accoutrement is the shield he takes from Harrenhald. An old, battered, and splintered one bearing the device of House, House Lawston, a black bat on a field of gold and silver. The gold and silver c- color perhaps a symbol of the house's wealth at the time, the black a nod to the ill repute of the house, one in which one of its most prominent members, the Lady Donnell, practiced black magic. Jamie grabbed it since this will add to his no-one camouflage. No one would object to him having it. This shield will make it to King's Landing before being handed over to Brienne, who will bear it on her quest for Sansa Stark, though she will have it repainted after Sir Illifer the Penniless says it's bad news. In a way, it's a reflection of Jaime's own reputation, which is not well considered in Westeros, and due to her associations with him and carrying his sword, Brienne herself will carry Jaime's reputation around with her around the Riverlands. The shield then acts as an externalization of Jamie's reputation, his honor, now in the hands of Brienne, repainted anew to cover up the wear, tear, and disrepute that it had endured previously. 
And while I'm not necessarily a proponent of this theory I'm about to say, I do want to shout out notable A Song of Ice and Fire blogger Cantus, who crafted a well-reasoned tinfoil about how this shield may be the same one bore by the Knight of the Laughing Tree from Mira's story in Brand 2. Cantus was able to track the history of the shield, standard customs for shield design and repair in Westeros, and its usage to at least make that idea seem plausible. It's a fun analysis that's worth checking out, but it's not impossible that Lyanna Stark would go looking for a shield and armor in Harrenhal to adorn herself for the tourney. The Lady Danelle Lawston famously wore armor into battle, and armor designed for a woman would make sense for Lyanna to grab. Again, I don't necessarily think it's a true theory, but given how much prominence George seems to place on these two shields that mostly center on Harrenhal, felt it was worth voicing. But while here, we should mention House Lawston, who came to hold Harrenhal during the reign of Aegon III after House Strong died during the dance, and would be its proprietors until their own demise, at which point Harrenhal would pass to House Went. There are some notable Lawstons peppered through Westerosi history. One was hand to Aegon the Unworthy, another was one of his mistresses. Dunk's mentor, Sir Arlen of Pennytree, defeated a bastard Lawston during the tourney at King's Landing in 193 AC, and there's also a Lawston running around with the Golden Company when we get to a dance with dragons as well. His name is John. The most notable Lawston is the one we mentioned a couple times now, the Lady Danelle, also known as Mad Danelle. Kissed by fire and donned in black armor, Danelle supposedly snatched children to cook in her stew, bathed in blood, and feasted on man flesh. Her reputation for the dark arts was surely augmented by the time she served under Bloodraven during the Second Blackfire Rebellion. We don't have much else to go on with her, besides the few mentions during Brienne and Jamie chapters, but as always, when a woman is deemed a witch and sorceress in patriarchal societies like Westeros, we should be raising an eyebrow. We know from countless examples in our real world, from Joan of Arc to the Salem Witch Trials, that any woman who pushes against gender norms are discredited as witches. Even if there is truth to her magic, something akin to Melisandre, it's very possible her desire to wear armor and fight in battle is enough to have popular opinion turn against her. In that, she makes a very nice parallel to Brienne, who is constantly caged in by others for her gender. Jaime wants to make haste for King's Landing. Via the King's Road, they may even make it in time for Joffrey's wedding. But Steelshanks isn't having any of that. Danger still lurks in the open country, and even though I earlier mentioned that the War of the Five Kings was kinda winding down, the chaos and violence in the Riverlands was not. Which is yet another symptom of the Game of Thrones. The High Lords play it, and they can end it, but even when they do, the violence they unleash and sentiment they sow among the small folk will remain a palpable force well after official hostilities are over. This will in fact be a big part of our coverage heading into A Feast for Crows. Jamie recounts the last time he came this way, leaving the tourney at Harrenhal prematurely at the orders of Eris, just moments after the greatest moment of his young life. This would be an eye-opening moment for him, where real politics clashed with the aesthetics of it. Eris made a grand performance of Jamie's entry into the Kingsguard, the youngest to ever do it, by the legendary Lord Commander Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, in front of what amounts to one of the most famously attended events ever in the Seven Kingdoms. But that's all aesthetic. It's the style. The substance of it, Jamie remembers a lot less fondly. He was heiresses now, to do as the Mad King wished, and that meant whatever it took to demean, demote, and slight Tywin Lannister. Jamie and his skills are irrelevant to Eris. He just cares about slighting Tywin by neutralizing his firstborn son and heir. You'll have no glory here, 
refers to Lord Wentz Turney, of course, but also applies to Jamie during the Mad King's reign. He doesn't get to make a name for himself out in the field against Robert and his band of rebels, and the only contribution he can, and does, make gets him the opposite of glory, killing the king everyone hated, and needed dead, and for that he won shame, dishonor, and forever mistrust. An act done behind closed doors, the exact opposite of the roaring crowds of Harrenhal at his investiture. They cheered the lie, the style, his actual substance. Deposing the monarch and saving the king's landing from genocide remained hidden. Yeah, and I, I think there's something here about the pattern, you know, repeating um, again with, with Jamie kind of being stolen away from Tywin. Um, you know, you have to think that part of the point, there were there were a couple of factors there, but like, Part of the point of, of the behanding is, you know, to <laughs> deprive Tywin of this, like, jewel in his crown. Um, Tywin bulls right past it. He <laughs> ignores it. And he's like, you can fight with your left hand, right? Jamie's like, yeah, yeah, um, in the next chapter. And, um, yeah, um, but it, but that happens kind of very soon before they have their, their break um, because Jamie refuses to leave the Kingsguard and... Uh, you know, it kind of ended up having the same effect. You know, whether whether it's physical strength or or an emotional transformation, Jamie has become a version of himself who won't allow Tywin to use him in that way. Yeah, I like how you say that Tywin just kind of pretends he has his hand and talks to him like he does. It's almost like how he's also oblivious about the incest or refuses to acknowledge it between Cersei and Jamie. Uh, that's really good stuff. Yeah, the the amount of things that Tywin pretends not to see. <laughs> I do not see it. Is, is that, Those should be the Lannister house words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've seen the hostage and ward system at play explicitly in the story many times. But the Byzantine nature of feudal obligation, brotherhood oaths, and class dynamics mean Jaime himself becomes a hostage of Eris. Part of the reason you build an overly complicated, confusing, and often contradictory bureaucracy is so that the elite can move around those below them at will keep them stagnant as needed, or move them on the game board for their own selfish ends. There's a wide gulf between what agency a knight of the Kingsguard people would assume to have, and what Jamie could actually do while in that office. At least for now, Jamie remains one of our few point of views who has actually been around for Robert's Rebellion. He is part of that generation that has been scarred by it, just like Ned was. And that's why the same ghost that haunted Ned's fever dreams in Eddard 10, A Game of Thrones, will also haunt Jamie's memory here shortly, the White Bull and Arthur Dane very specifically. That's something, as I've said before, I love about A Song of Ice and Fire, this, this positioning of Robert's Rebellion as the, the story we're not being told that happened in the past, that on the surface is the most glorious, straightforward thing ever. We all, get, we all got together to fight the worst guy in Westeros, and then you actually look at them and they're all just dealing, yeah, with these, these these scars, these memories, these traumas they haven't dealt with. In the last chapter, Arya 8, we saw that village that was destroyed by the Tullys during Robert's Rebellion. And here we get that same haunted atmosphere. The sense that the real ghosts are memories. Arya's still a kid, of course, and while she's been through a lot and that has aged her up a little on the inside, you could say, her life is still in front of her. She doesn't have a whole lot of memories to deal with. Jamie's POV works differently because, as you say, he belongs to a different generation. He lived through the last war, and the past keeps intruding. He thinks that he's still bitter about being used as a pawn by the Mad King, but that feeling is just a hangover from his rage in the moment. Which makes sense, of course. I think that's some, something everyone deals with in one way or another, that your feelings when you're a teenager just feel more real, even though they're objectively stupider. <laughs> they just They just felt more real. 
Jamie's present-day emotions are, in large part, defense mechanisms built around his feelings from the past, which are radioactive. It all stems from that disillusionment, his realization that he's been lied to about how the Kingsguard works, and that the social and political structures of which he's a part are antithetical to the stated values of knighthood. I think that's something a lot of characters in the story deal with, is the realization that our society really has no idea what heroism and villainy actually are. We just, we just tell ourselves that we know. In the next chapter, Catelyn rides through the Whispering Wood, where Rob won his first battle. And all that's left is the ruin. Broken swords, moldering skeletons. It's that haunted feeling of realizing, oh, it's, it's going to happen to this generation too. All of the present-day experiences we're reading about will one day be converted to legend. During his chat with Kyburn, Jamie reveals he's always whole in his dreams, and that he always has his right hand. Which I get, the past dies hard in our dreams. I'm still late to classes and exams nearly 20 years removed from that part of my life. <laughs> Jamie explicitly telling us so lets us more quickly adjust to his dream sequence later on. Kyburn also sent the young woman Pia to keep Jamie warm at night, though Jamie does turn her away in the end. Pia will become part of Jamie's supporting cast during Feast Dance, though unfortunately most of her time in our saga has been has seen her brutalized and assaulted by the men in charge of Harrenhal. Lannisters, Mummers, especially at the hands of Roose Bolton, as seen in A Clash of Kings, and The Mountain as well. So this is kind of a side point, um, but I'm curious if you guys think that anything Pia tells Jamie in bed is true, um, because it all sounds very much to me like a line. Um, like, it's it's certainly plausible that she could have lived her whole life at Harrenhal and, and been there at Jamie's investiture, but, like, the details she offers are so vague and so flattering. Like, you were so handsome all in white, and everyone said what a brave knight you were. Like, you could just swap in any color or armor. <laughs> that and, like, narrows that it down. Work. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then she just so happens to imagine Jamie when she's sleeping with other men, which is just extremely convenient, in my opinion. Um <laughs> It, it doesn't really make any practical difference, but I, I do feel like this is a chance to maybe read a little characterization into Pia, um, who is, you know, as someone who has been kind of deployed as a sex worker for, you know, all the time, basically, that we've seen her in, in the books. Um, and, like, the idea that she can come up with these lies that, that do work, um, it, it works on Jamie almost, um, uh, is, is, I think, an interesting point of characterization for her um and then also if she is lying it kind of adds another layer to her being a false persona and not a real woman um which i use only in the in the terminology of the chapter yeah, yeah. um as this uh version is you know one that she has constructed for jamie's pleasure that's a really interesting question i never thought about it i mean it fits this chapter in that the person she's describing is the fantasy Jamie. It's not really anything to do with him, especially now. And it makes me think of that bit in A Feast for Crows when he's at, I think it's Derry, and I think it's Gatehouse Amy. I think I forget who it is, but like there's there's a woman who like rubs his golden hand, and Jamie's like, does she think I can feel that? And she's like saying, you swore the smiley knight. And Jamie has to say it was the smiling knight, and actually it wasn't me, it was Arthur Dane. Like, you're not even listening to my story. It's... Uh, and of course these women are doing that because they think that's what he wants to hear and in their experience men love to hear that they love to be to be talked up about how great and heroic and sexy and perfect they are and jamie is just like i i know enough that i realize that that's a story now and that that's a line like you were saying that that it really has nothing to do with me it's enough that it almost works on him but yeah i think yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that's just 
That's because, yeah, that, that's something you could say to anybody that has nothing to do with Jamie. That's interesting. What do you think, Manu? Yeah, I, I'm actually adapting that idea now. And I, it's mostly because of the idea you presented earlier, Mikal, about how all the other women in this chapter are like images or visions of women and not like the material substance. And I think within that context, this observation really makes sense. It's one of those tricky things. Whenever minor characters come up in these chapters, I do mm-hmm. a quick like wiki search on them just to be like, you know, <laughs> what are the big plot points I might not be recalling at this time? And things for PSAs like, oh, she's promiscuous and stuff. And I'm like, well, she's a serving girl, like serving in a great castle. And there have been some really not great people. So like, is some of this a survival tactic? Like she's had to find this way so she can navigate and be beaten less and hopefully rape less and all that stuff. Um, So she might have a script. And I think the phrasing, everyone said what a brave knight you were. There might just be a little bit of a mythos around Jamie and probably around a lot of people from that tourney. Like, oh, do you remember him from this tourney or her? She was so beautiful in that gown. And I'm sure people talked about the youngest Kingsguard ever at the Lord Once tourney. So that might have seeped in, especially at the location. Like, I bet you the people at Hall probably kept the memory of Lord Once tourney alive longer than it maybe did in other places as well. But like I said, Jamie doesn't do much anything with Pia, because as he says, he has a woman. Brienne, of course. (laughs) Whom the conversation turns to next. Jamie's latest and greatest lie has turned against him and Brienne. Varga Hote, now Lord of Harrenhal, does not find 300 dragons sufficient for her ransom, not if Selwyn Tarth is sitting on all the sapphires in Tarth. Vargo's obstinance rankles Jamie, though he tries to downplay it at first. Jamie's lie got her through a couple weeks unharmed. Surely that's something. And honestly, who even cares? What's she to him? I love that even as Jamie tries to blame her for their situation, he can't help but think, damn, she really did have me beat though. <laughs> His self-absolution turns into wish fulfillment. Maybe Brienne will kill Hode instead? Jamie's thoughts betray him. Even as he tries to keep up the cynical facade of his early chapters, unconsciously he's thinking of Brienne in more positive ways. He'll never fully drop the sardonic act, but already you can see the dialectic argument between the Jamie that was and the Jamie that is, which will lead to synthesis in the chapter's final act. Yeah, this is a really complicated section of the chapter. It's it's very much like, I I think, you know, the last shards of Jamie's old exterior just making their presence known. There's still mm-hmm. splinters there, um, but it's also very deeply in conflict with the evolved and resolved version that he's kind of struggling to allow to break forth. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, I found it like almost charming if we weren't talking about rape, um, how long it takes Jamie to catch on to the very, very, very obvious reason why Vargaho wanted to know if Rian was still a virgin. Um, this- Nothing to do with Lord Selwyn, nothing to do with the ransom. He just wants to rape her and wants to know that she's a virgin. Um, it's also kind of cute that, like, Jamie, even in his, like, cynical moments, it doesn't qualify in his head that, like, oh, well, 300 dragons is a reasonable, you know, ransom for a knight. Like, he he doesn't even think, like, and eh, she's not a knight, or, and eh, she's a woman, and, <laughs> you know, he's just like, yeah, well, she's a knight. Um, on the other hand, once Jamie does kind of catch on to what Kyburn is talking about here, he really says some awful and dehumanizing things about Brienne. Um, the joke about her maidenhead being hard enough to break off Hot's cock is terrible, and his thought that 
Um, Brienne is tough enough to survive a few rapes is maybe even worse. Um, and they are both uh, kind of grossly reminiscent of the way Cersei thinks about the Septa she encounters in Fe uh, Feast for Crows. Um, she thinks that Septa Unella's maidenhead is probably as hard and stiff as boiled leather. And by the way, it's super fun going in and like word searching for that. <laughs> that narrows it down again. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she also thinks that many of the Septas are probably praying for a good hard raping. Uh, so not a good look uh, from either of them. And the similarity does not cast Jamie in a flattering light. Um, you know, by the end of the paragraph, he kind of does again, kind of almost magnetize back to like true north of like thinking of Brienne as his compatriot. Like this would be a great joke and accomplishment shared between us almost if she you know snapped Vargo Hood's neck um but you know it doesn't make up all the ground J Jamie's a complicated character he he has it's really like it's it's three steps forward two steps two, te two steps back for him he's vast he contains multitudes he's a land yeah. of contrasts and I think you hit on something really interesting with the comparison to Cersei here, because Jamie's his external identity, what he shows to people, is shaped by his relationship with her. What he pretends to believe, she actually believes. She's his anchor, the foundation he used to rebuild his personality after the horrors of the Mad King's reign. Remember what Jamie said about getting through the executions of Ricard and Brandon Stark by thinking about sex with Cersei? That'll mess you up. So he <laughs> talks like her, he acts like her. He even thinks like her, despite also deeply resenting her on a level he doesn't seem to be consciously aware of, yet. It was Cersei, after all, who convinced him to join the Kingsguard and set him on this path. And right before Jaime pushed Bran out the window, he looked at Cersei with loathing in his eyes. Even as he talked about the things he does for love, he didn't look like he loved her in that moment. Eventually, you become the mask you wear. When Jaime hears what Brienne is in for, he falls back on rape jokes. And part of that is, is about getting along with other men. Like, I think that has to do with how he describes Steelshanks Walton, and now this is how he gets along with Kyburn. Who, Kyburn, yeah, I mean, just sending in Pia, and then the way talk, he, Kyburn talks about this, Kyburn has <laughs> Kyburn has some, has some deeply messed up ideas that, <laughs> that I think are, you know, even farther than Cersei is willing to consciously face. But I think Jamie is also talking like this because that is what Cersei would do. We saw that in the Blackwater when she just so casually said, yeah, everyone in this room is getting raped. Anyway, someone fill my wine. Like, that's Cersei. And as long as Jamie can outsource his mind and soul to Cersei, he doesn't have to think about the horrors of the world. But now Jamie is having trouble keeping the mask from slipping. Because the reality is he does care what happens to Brienne. Why else did he shield her from rape in the first place? I love that he thinks the news that she might be in for horrible things from the Bloody Mummers, he thinks that irritates him. <laughs> Irritation, like that's really all there is to it. He, again, he has to tell himself he doesn't care. He was prepared to, to kill her with a Cleo's phrase sword, which is true. And yet he's still thinking of her as strong and hoping she snaps Fargo Hood's neck. I think George does a great job conveying Jamie's internal struggle purely through this kind of implication and subtext. I think it's more realistic than if Jamie thought directly about how much Brienne has come to mean to him. I think this is, this is closer to how a conflicted thought process of someone who's trying to change, this is how it actually feels in real life. By the time we get to A Feast for Crows, Jamie is still talking this way. He's still callous and aggressive, but he's, he's doing so in kind of a, a targeted way. He's trying to use it for good, like trying to convince Edmure to surrender Riverrun to avoid any more bloodshed by making him think he'd trebuchet Edmure's newborn baby into the castle if he doesn't. Horrible thing to say, but there's actually a, a purpose to it at that point in the story. 
We find out more about the rebellious house Tarbeck and Jamie's grandfather Titos, a gentler sort of lion who, no- who negotiated a safe return of hostages between the two houses. The young Tywin had recommended war crimes instead. While we may be- understand the circumstances that created the war criminal known as Tywin Lannister, it's true that he didn't have to be like this. It's not like he's coming from a long line of martial lords who regularly solve problems with violence. At a certain level, he chose to be the type of guy who drowns women and children in mines underneath castles, because of his own self-importance and his haughty opinion of his house and the feudal system. Jamie muses that all those people are long dead, the Tarbacks and the Lannister hostages they took, and his grandfather Titos himself. Only Tywin Lannister endured, as eternal as the rock, which of course is a heavy dose of irony for the book's big finish. Eventually, they come to a burned village. Jamie notes it had been put to the torch about a year ago, maybe a bit longer. In contrast to the village Arya and the Brotherhood stumbled through last chapter, which was attributed to Hoster Tully about 20 years ago, there are now two civil wars in the living memory of Westeros. When passing through ruins, you can no longer say, that was burned down in the war, you will have to specify which one. And the ruins, describing a fallen inn with barely anything left standing, reminds me of Queen's Crown from the Bran and Jon doubleheader. Whether it's militarized borders and raiders, or armies marching through an open country, the end result is the same. Places of safety, of shelter, of community are destroyed, and those that live there are dead or forced to migrate. I love how George transitions from Jamie thinking about how brutal his father can be, right to a village whose destruction Tywin was probably responsible for. (laughs) That's what he'll do to preserve his family's rep. That's what he'll do to be feared. But Jamie's own reputation has been destroyed in the process. You know, there's a, there's a fine line between fear and loathing. Jamie isn't really feared. He's hated. And that's really starting to get to him, in a way it hasn't since Ned Stark first stared him down. As Jamie thinks, Tywin will be ashamed to see Jamie maimed. You know, not horrified or distraught for your son, just ashamed. It doesn't fit that fearsome image. It says you can attack House Lannister. Some reason Tywin started a war after Catelyn snatched Tyrion. But Jamie, like Tyrion, wants to be loved. He remembers an innkeep being honored to have a Kingsguard knight at his table, telling Jamie it's a tale he'll tell his grandchildren, a more positive legacy to leave behind. Yet, not only did Jamie's legend grow darker after that, but now the war has swallowed up this place and that family. Dead men tell no tales. There are no witnesses. The drama can only play out in Jamie's head, which feeds perfectly into what happens next. Just when you might be thinking your first time through that this is a chapter about Jamie returning to King's Landing, we'll get there by the end, you get this dream sequence out of nowhere. A lot of the big iconic scenes in A Song of Ice and Fire that seem to come out of nowhere actually don't. You can go back and find the groundwork for it. We do that on this podcast. <laughs> this is an exception. Sure, we saw Jamie dream about killing the Mad King earlier, but that was a short palate cleanser at the end of a transitional chapter, Jamie 2. And it plainly presented something that really happened. There's not much mystery or debate to be had about its meaning. This is on a whole different level. This is the closest equivalent in A Storm of Swords to Bran's own dream vision in the first book, or The House of the Undying in book two. Like those, this is a trippy cinematic exercise in style, abandoning any pretense of realism in favor of dream logic and symbolic imagery. This dream is nowhere near as ambitious or important as Bran's dream or Danny's adventures in Wonderland, but it's got the same wild tone shifts, the same self-contained structure, 
and the same abstract associative approach to color, shape, and movement. It's as much poetry as prose. And part of what makes that so shocking is you'd never think Jamie would be the POV for a scene like that. Bran, Danny, sure, that makes sense. They're arguably the two characters with the strongest links to the magical, mystical side of things. And it speaks to their centrality to the story structure that they get these transcendent metaphysical visions. But Jamie? Bloodraven didn't choose him. The Undying didn't invite him over for LSDT. <laughs> no, Jamie basically stumbles onto the astral plane accidentally. He's not one of the OG chosen ones. His story grew in the telling, as Tolkien would say. So when Jamie's third eye briefly opens, it turns inward. Bran and Danny's visions were more about the big picture of the story than they were about them, their individual character arcs. Sure, Bran saw that winter was coming, which is important for his story, and Danny saw Eris and Rhaegar, which matters for her story, but they also saw a ton of stuff that has nothing to do with them at all. Because George was using those scenes to kind of zoom out the audience. Give us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of the whole thing, the whole story structure. Jamie's dream works differently. It's more psychological, an artifact of his own brain more than anything else. Those Bran and Danny chapters feel expansive. This feels claustrophobic, because it's about the walls closing in on Jamie, about having no escape, even in your own head, from yourself and the choices you've made. It feels less like a message from the beyond and more like a therapy session being held in a sensory deprivation tank. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's Jamie's guilty id's way of like slaying the Kingslayer. Mm -hmm. Like he's he's finally he's the butterfly bursting out of his cocoon <laughs> of badness. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and you know, I mean, like, the, but really, like, it's so important because it's it's the the person who can make those positive choices can can finally come out kind of like unrestricted by like. Oh, I should be. I shouldn't. I don't need to be doing this. Blah blah blah. Like he just does it. Yeah, I like that. Jamie's like getting crossfaded. Like he's drinking and smoking <laughs> at the same time. If you have dream wine and sleep on like a ancient sacred ritual stump of a tree, um, that's just really gonna fuck up with your dreams. I really enjoy that. God, I, I suddenly sorry. I just imagine like the weirwood stump going like, oh my god, oh my god. We have to like, we can't even not let him in. Like it's just. There's too much going on here. <laughs> Places, everyone. We got a show to put on. <laughs> so he comes to naked and alone and whole, but with the immense weight of Casterly Rock above him, which I think is symbolic of the legacy of House Lannister, as Tywin would put it. The overbearing expectations put on Jamie by family and by society. It's so revealing how this starts, that he's, he's home at the rock, he thinks, but is surrounded by enemies, which is a hint from his subconscious that... His family are his enemies, or specifically Tywin and Cersei, since they're the ones who show up here. Yeah, it's not unlike what uh, Oberyn Martell told Tyrion when he rode into town a couple chapters ago. Yep, the ones who should love you don't. Jamie describes the sensation of being whole as good as sex, which stands out. Previously, Jamie and Cersei thought themselves two parts of a total, two halves of a whole. In a sense, then, when they did have sex, they were whole, they were one. But Jamie is slowly starting, starting to stray away from that. Now his conception of being whole is untethered, if not totally free of Cersei. He views himself as complete, or maybe the fact that he will be side by side with Brienne is what is making him feel full. A dozen hooded shapes prod him into the darkness, forcing him down deeper into the abyss. 
It's evocative of John Snow's dreams, always going deeper and deeper underneath the home you grew up in to find your family. Below the earth, his doom awaited, which is true of all of us. Many cultures bury their dead, but even those that practice other last rites eventually return to the ground, whether in ash or as water. Back to the mud, as they say in Joe Abercrombie's first law series. And those mysterious hooded figures give the dream a, a kind of ritualistic feel. It's almost like they're conducting human sacrifice, right? They're shoving Jamie into this dark place where something horrible waits for him. We know on Riri that it was Bloodraven who arranged Bran's dream, cracking open his third eye. The Undying sent Danny shade of the evening. So these hooded figures appear to be the ones in charge of this dream, if anyone is. And since Jamie is sleeping on a weirwood stump, they might represent the old gods, aka the preserved spirits of the children of the forest, the singers that Bran sees north of the wall. But they also might be conjured up entirely from Jamie's subconscious. Avatars of guilt. They're faceless because they could be anyone. Everyone has judged him and found him guilty. Jamie landing on soft sands and shallow water reminds me a lot of Christopher Nolan's Inception, where Leo washes up in limbo, unconstructed dream space depicted as a beach with a shallow tide washing in. It also takes me to Gandalf in Return of the King, describing death to Pippin, a gray rain curtain pulling back to white shores. Is Jamie in the depths of his own id, his soul, or is this an allegory for death? Maybe it's both. Yeah, I, you know, initially I thought this was a less romantic level, but bear with me for a second. I, I think that the sandy floor of the space kind of has to evoke the bear pit that we're going to, you know, visit soon. It's mm. like, it's Waldenstone of Lord and Sand. Brienne is going to ask, as you're going to note, like, is, the, is there a bear in here? And I kind of wonder if, like, as an allegory for death, like, this this might be Jamie's bear pit. Like, this is Jamie's... Yeah like death in the bear pit like he's he you know he's almost the one with the sword that doesn't work in the end and you know Ooh, that's really good it's, just yeah, like brienne's tourney yeah like brienne's tourney sword in the bear pit that's great that this is they're almost the same scene just happening on a, on a different plane with different imagery that's great and yeah, yeah that's great and oceans and dreams are you know usually you know it, it, at least in terms of kind of a shallow half-baked symbolism usually interpreted as representing the subconscious itself Jamie is going beneath the surface. He's going, into an, he's going into a place where none of his deflections will work anymore. And unlike Bran's dream or the House of the Undying, the dream logic here is less about wild imagery. Like, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing that he sees that's like uh, Danny's vision of the, the dwarfs raping the naked woman or Bran's, you know, dreaming all the, the weird abstract versions of all the characters. The, the dream logic here is more about the transitions. Like, just suddenly swords appear. And suddenly there's room to ride horses down here. And suddenly there's a beach beneath Casterly Rock. That's what lends the kind of the kind of unreal atmosphere to it. Like the rock felt so solid when the dream started. Like Tywin himself, as Jamie described him. This, this impregnable monolith that can't be defied, can't be conquered. And now that immovable object is up against an irresistible force. The tides that can erode any rock eventually, no matter how big, no matter how strong. The voices start to say that it's Jamie's place the place inside him, the place he'll end up. The voices reveal themselves to Jamie, like Aang seeing all the previous avatars in The Last Airbender. Endless generations from Lan the Clever to his father and his sister and his bastard of a kingly son. Isn't that just ironic that you've got this, this ideal of an unbroken chain of succession going back to the beginning of time, and it all ends with Joffrey. <laughs> like, on one hand, he messes with that ideal image, which is how Tywin looks at his family. The glorious, golden, eternal Lannister reign. 
tarnished by the accusations of Twincest. On the other hand, isn't Joffrey literally the most Lannister of all of them? <laughs> he embodies Lannister pride taken to its fullest extent. No one outside the family is good enough to make children with. That's what's really eating away at this place, the rot within House Lannister. Like, the only reason the voices can echo is because this place is... empty. Behind Cersei and Joffrey, Jaime sees a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. Who are they? Future Lannister children, probably, but who knows if they'll ever exist. All of Jaime and Cersei's children are doomed to die young. No grandchildren for them, even if they live to old age. Which, you know, they won't. The kids remind me of Varys' little birds, crawling silently along the dark tunnels in the Red Keep, emerging at the end of a dance with dragons to finish off Jaime's uncle Kevon. Their faces are described as shadows, which also makes me think of Melisandre's children. The doom waiting for you when the torch goes out. Cersei is the only fire in the darkness, the only light in Jamie's place, and she herself turns to go. Again, this chapter appears to be creating the internal fissure between Jamie and Cersei, as the former moves more towards the Brienne pole in his life, a fissure maybe not fully consummated until Jamie burns Cersei's letter in A Feast for Crows. That fire imagery in common, right? That he wants the fire here, but then in A Feast for Crows, he uses the fire to burn that connection. And this is where Jamie admits to himself, if only in his dreams, that Cersei was never as devoted to him as he was to her. It's been a self-destructive relationship for him. His ability to relate to anyone else has withered, as we've seen with Brienne. And it's a terrible irony that the defining moment of Jamie's life was stopping fire from claiming thousands of lives. But here, all he wants is his sister's fire. We chase down the things that destroy us, every time. Cersei is the only light in the world for Jamie. The source of meaning he's clung to all his life. His great chivalric love, at least in his mind. But here she is, taking the torch away. Just like Axel Florent took the torch away from his brother down in the dungeons beneath Dragonstone. The truth is that while Cersei and Tywin are both fond of Jaime, like you would be of a pet, they don't respect him enough to really love him, at least not the way that he needs. They both so clearly think of him as the dumb Lannister. It's not even that they don't care about the pain he's in. It's that it doesn't occur to them that he could have such feelings in the first place. And what better way to represent that than Cersei and Tywin leaving Jaime alone in the darkness? The way Brienne drops in and stubbornly repeats her vows to Jaime, it's almost like she metaphysically sensed Jaime was having a nice nightmare and then broke into his dream. Just like Inception, yet again. <laughs> she's wearing the little machine from Paprika. She's just, she's just tapping in. <laughs> Jamie frees her, not for the last time this chapter, and then both are armed, two swords against the never-ending darkness. We get that capital R romantic writing here now, though it's every bit lowercase r romantic too. In this light, she could be a beauty. In this light, she could be a knight. Jamie is starting to see Brienne in a different light. More importantly, he's starting to see her for who she is, who she wants to be if the world didn't keep trying to tell her no. Yeah, um, hard eyes emoji. <laughs> <laughs> what else can you say? It's, it's such a perfect follow-up to their duel, right, in that earlier Jamie chapter when they were fighting each other, and now they're back-to-back -back against the world. And this is where the, the dream starts kind of working in Jamie's favor. Like, this is an internal space, so it means he can't hide from his demons. But the flip side of that is it's easier for him to be honest than in his waking life. Just as it's only here that he can admit to himself that Cersei will ultimately abandon him, it's only here that he can admit that he's falling for Brienne instead. 
In his last chapter, he was disturbed to find himself getting hard at the sight of Brienne naked. She's naked in the dream, too, but the defense mechanisms are gone, and Jamie can finally feel his own damn feelings. I love that he says both that she could be a beauty and she could be a knight, and there's not even a, a but in between. There's no, there's no contrast, there's no contradiction. You can be both of those things. We've already seen that in their story so far. They've been switching the roles of knight and maiden, alternating between beauty and beast, because roles are all they are, and they can easily blur together. He cuts off her chains, and in doing so, removes his own. Jamie and Brienne are in a liminal space, where they can become more like each other. As our patron and friend Lowe has said, George is doing some really interesting writing on gender with these two, showing it as this fluid, flexible thing, rather than a rigidly defined binary. It's only when Jamie realizes that Brienne could be both beauty and night that her sword takes fire and the darkness retreats. Only by reaching out to one another, seeing ourselves in one another, does the pain start to fade. The fiery sword is the central binding image of this dream. It clearly resembles Lightbringer, Azora High's famous sword to light up the darkness, but the color is different. These swords are blue, George writes, and also silver. There's that great line, the silvery flames shift and shimmer. While Lightbringer, whether you look at Stannis' version or Beric Dondarrion's version, is always the usual fire colors, orange, yellow, and red. So instead of hot, this is a, a cool fire, an icy fire, you could say, and it seems easier to contain and control. We get that great image when Brienne is waving her sword around of the burning blade reflected on the water. What you do with a new sword is you plunge it into water to temper it, and that's what's happening here on a spiritual level. Fire consumes, Beric said in our last episode, but this fire stops right at the hilt. It doesn't touch your flesh, and there's no sacrifice of any kind required. The fire seems to come from within the steel. I was saying earlier that Jaime snuffed out the fire with Eris, but still wanted Cersei's torch so he wasn't left alone in the darkness. In other words, you need a balance between fire and ice. You need enough light to sustain you, but not enough to burn you alive. That's what these swords are. That's what Jamie and Brienne are experiencing. A sustaining love, not a destructive one like his love with Cersei. As the two go deeper into the darkness, swords aflame, Brienne asks what's down here. A bear, a bear, she repeats, as if the future is seeping into the present. Doom, responds Jamie, all the while unable to stop checking out Brienne, though he gets hard at the thought of chasing down his sister. Jamie has only known Cersei. When Pia came into his bed, it didn't take long for his thoughts to go to his sister, and now his feelings for Brienne are getting all complicated up in that too. But even as those feelings complicate in Jamie, I feel there is a distinction between Cersei and Brienne in this dream. Cersei feels like a true apparition, a ghost, an unknown. Whereas Brienne and Jamie here have an actual rapport in place, the way they chat with each other. I mislike this place. I'm not fond of it myself either. <laughs> it's the sort of banter we'd gotten accustomed to on the road. While Cersei's light is fading in Jamie's mind, Brienne becomes that heat as he feels the warmth of her hand as well as the blade. Now this is really where you see how deep we're digging into Jamie here. Again, it's more psychological than Bran's dream or Danny in the House of the Undying. Jamie can't even define what's waiting for them in the darkness. It's not any of the, the animals or monsters Brienne can come up with. It's just doom. A palpable dread in the back of Jamie's mind. The fear of being left alone in the dark. A very childish fear, but one that kind of sticks with you on some level. Along the same lines, this is where George most directly shows us that for Jamie, the appeal of his warrior identity is rooted in a fear of vulnerability. 
Over and over again in this dream, he repeats it. I can keep myself safe. I won't be hurt. Nothing can touch me with a sword in my good hand. That hand made him a knight. That hand killed his king and saved the city. It's all he could depend on. And now it's gone. George is just really keyed into Jamie's psyche here, showing us that even in the middle of this terrifying situation, Jamie still has time to get hard at the thought of Cersei and tremble at Brienne's touch. The gods fashioned him for love, as Maester Aemon would say, as much as anyone else. And these are the stakes of this dream. What Jamie really cares about. What he loves. And what gets in the way of expressing that in his waking life. As much as Jamie fears vulnerability, it's necessary for his health and happiness. And while losing his hand has been anything but healthy, it's also forced him to accept his own vulnerability. And he might honestly not have otherwise. Yeah, I think this kind of ties in with what you said earlier about Tywin and Cersei kind of not fully loving Jamie because they can't imagine him as like a sufficiently complex human being to experience something like emotional pain. And I kind of feel like that this is how Jamie the 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 version of this for Jamie is vulnerability. That like mm. he, he definitely knows that he has emotions and can experience pain, but he can't allow himself to embrace that vul- or even consider that vulnerability um and it's a humility humiliating and very painful process like is you know he he tries to die and you know immediately after losing his hand um but it's a humanizing one he he rediscovers what he's capable of on an emotional level and i i really love that even in this dream space where he is theoretically whole and not the wounded Jamie who is open to these things, he gets to keep that shiver of vulnerability that Brienne inspires. The ghosts of Jamie's past ride now to meet them on pale horses, starting, of course, with Eddard Stark. As we discussed in Jamie V, Ned Stark has permanent rent-free residence in Jamie's head. His dead Kingsguard brothers come next, and besides them, Rhaegar Targaryen, who is crowned in mist and grief, appropriate for the most emo royal around. I linger on the phrasing rightful heir for the Iron Throne, an interesting way for Jamie to think two decades after the fact. As we'll find out in Jamie's first feast chapter, he had a friendship, or at least an acquaintance, with the late prince, and though Rhaegar had fallen by the time of Jamie's kingslaying, I think young Jamie looked forward to the day where Rhaegar would be king, before it all burned down. Miss may also be a hint at the old god's involvement in Jamie's vision here, to go with the Weirwood stump, of course. Grey mists are found all over Bran, John, and Reek chapters, where it seems the old gods and Blund Raven might be getting involved. Jamie describes the riders as armored in snow, which can take on many meanings in George's world. The explicit meaning of the white cloaks and the armor of the Kingsguard, and the implicit interpretations of Northmen like Ned Stark haunting his past, or even White Walkers reanimating the dead to haunt his future. The ghosts close on Jaime with silent swords and lethal tongues. They have no room for his reasons for killing the king, which gets to a fear deep within Jaime, one of those vulnerabilities you guys were talking about. He's kept this truth about Eris to himself all these years, but what if he had come out with it? and people hated him all the same. In private, he can at least rationalize to himself that they don't know the full story, so he can craft whatever private narrative helps him sleep at night. But to share that truth with all, and then be rejected? He would lose that trump card. The rejection he experiences is proven to be deserved. Yeah, and Jamie does end the dream in kind of a rush of terror, but 
He also observes that Brienne's sword is uh, the light that's still keeping, you know, the ghosts at least somewhat at bay, and it is still burning. Um, and I, I kind of like to connect this to the shifting goalposts that you mentioned earlier, of like Jamie's vulnerability, where he, or invulnerability, where he's like, you know, nothing, nothing can hurt me as long as I'm whole. Oh, okay, nothing can hurt me as long as I have a sword. Um, but then in the end, it's like just, it's it, he has neither of those things. I guess he just has Brienne's sword. It's just so telling and funny that Jamie assumes the ghost come to haunt him, Scrooge style, has to be Ned Stark. Like, even as Jamie declares he's not afraid of Ned and never has been, Ned is clearly living rent-free in Jamie's head. Or why would Jamie assume it's Ned at all? Even the first time through, we know it can't be Ned because there were two riders at the start. George might be stealing from all along the watchtower there, the last line of that two riders were approaching as the wind began to howl. And then they all come. Visors down, so they're faceless like the hooded, cloaked weirdos upstairs. Maybe they are those guys, symbolically. Maybe Jamie feels like it was his fellow Kingsguard knights, his brothers, who sacrificed him to the dark by leaving him alone with the Mad King. This is the doom waiting for Jamie in the darkness, ironically in the form of white knights and the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, as George describes Rhaegar. It's a clear parallel to Ned's own fever dream back in Book 1, confronting several of these same guys at the Tower of Joy. There's the same poetic call-and-response rhythm to the Kingsguard dialogue. Kind of like they're a hive mind, all finishing each other's sentences. And yeah, I, lo- I love the classic ghost story imagery of the mist all around them. It makes me think of samurai stories, too, which is fitting for these characters, returned to hold Jamie to account for violating the holy oath of their order. They embody his alienation and guilt, his belief that he'll never live up to the ideal like Brienne ironically does despite not being a knight. She says she swore an oath to keep him safe. But, as Arthur Dane says, so did they. He says it sadly, but he still says it. Jamie is on trial here, like Sandor was with the Brotherhood. And he defends himself well at first, I think, drawing from his last chapter. Eris was going to kill half a million people just to spite Robert. That's a good enough reason to break your oaths. That's no reason to be left alone in the dark. Ah, but then Rhaegar speaks up, burning red and black as well as white, the Targaryen colors. And here the prosecution has a better case. I left my family with you, Rhaegar says, just as he left the pregnant Lyanna with the other Kingsguard. I left Elia and her children in your care as a knight, and then your father's men slaughtered them. Jaime isn't responsible for that, any more than he's responsible for the Red Wedding just because he sent Rob regards through Roose Bolton. But the fire on Jaime's sword still starts to go out when he says he had no idea Tywin would hurt the children. And that is just not true. Jamie knows his father better than that. We see that just in this chapter when he thinks about the Tarbex. And on reread, this moment really stands out. Because Jamie makes the same excuse, I didn't know Dad would do that, when he confesses the truth about Tysha to Tyrion. It's Jamie's culpability with the rock above him, his own family, his own name. That is what left him alone in the dark. And yeah, Brienne's blade keeps burning. It's hard not to interpret that as a sign she'll survive at the end of the story and he won't. But it also means she has avoided those, those corrupt and toxic connections, allowing her to emerge as the true knight. In the context of the dream where all of these characters just reflect Jamie, she's the part of him that he wants to save, that he might be able to preserve against the shadow of the past. Jamie wakes up from his dream crying, which once again, he's just like me for real. He snaps back to reality, there goes gravity, though the dream is what feels real to him. 
Jamie finally takes stock of the Werewood Stump too. A ghost of the old gods, as dead as Ned Stark, but that doesn't mean the roots don't go deep still. It's possible Jamie was sent this vision. It could just be these nexus points of the old gods still have some of their power, much like the Werewood Stumps where the Ghost of Highheart visits the Brotherhood, their lingering essence preventing Thoros from seeing his visions at the same time. Yeah, okay, just to go back to the um, end of the dream for a second, like, I'm suddenly thinking of it like a very psychological kind of rebirth moment like i mean forget the forget the butterfly in the cocoon like (laughs) you know he's in this dark space you know with water on the floor and like cersei is there and like the you know it's almost like the you could you could almost sorry i'm english majoring all over you but like absolutely the flame you know is kind of like the umbilical cord um and you know and then in the end like it's you know he's there with brienne like not not to do it like oh they're twins too but like (laughs) they are kind of remain they do kind of remain there in this like in this space i don't know no i think that's great (laughs) and it makes me think of the other big jamie dream sequence in a feast for crows because who's that one about his mother joanna who's Mm -hmm. that 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 cord was cut pretty severely when uh when she died birthing Tyrion. and that also makes me think about the yeah, Tyrion is kind of like a, a structuring absence in the stream like no sign of him he's not even mentioned but he's the kind of he's the outlier here that jamie has to deal with because like i said he he also was culpable in what happened to taisha in the same way he was indirectly culpable in what happened to rhaegar's children so that's that's something he has to confront yeah, and I think emerging from a dark space will always kind of invoke the womb in some way. But Jamie also comes out of his dream crying and sweaty, covered in his own fluids. It's like a baby emerging, you and, know, squalling and crying. And exactly. then a doctor has to take care of him. Kyber exactly. Is, exactly. <laughs> Kyber, Kyber doesn't slap him on the ass. That would really, that would really make this scene whole. I guess that makes Steel Shanks a midwife in this uh, situation, which is a role that's maybe outside of his resume. I don't think it's on his CV. Worst midwife ever. <laughs> So in A Storm of Swords, there are 82 chapters in total, including the prologue and epilogue. In those 82 chapters, there is only one mention of Maester Marwyn, right here when Kyburn says the Maester was the only one who believed his ghost story. Marwyn remains one of George's biggest black boxes. His reputation precedes what little we saw of him in Samuel V, A Feast for Crows, but he's primed to have a large impact on the story, especially possibly in the realms of magic and dragons. So it's worthwhile to point a flag here in his one meager mention in passing in this book. Yeah, I love how George just drops this in passing. Oh, by the way, I think this is one of his great skills as a writer, the way he builds up characters before introducing them. He did this with Stannis. He does it with Mance. He does it with uh, Euron and, and Duran Martell. And with Marwyn, it's especially funny because we get all of this buildup. We get that one scene at the end of A Feast for Crows where he drops all these crazy ideas and then he goes, well, bye. <laughs> Walking out of the story once again. See you later. So we first heard about Marwyn the Mage from Miri Mazdur back in book one. He's the one who taught her the common tongue. A sign of how far he's traveled, how many different people he's met. Now we get our first glimpse of how the mage functions on his home turf of Old Town. Turns out Kyburn, like Miri Mazdur, was part of his little study group. And that fits with what we know about Marwyn, that he's into magic and mysticism and weird theories. Of course he wanted to hear Kyburn defend his master's thesis about ghosts being real. One of the things I find interesting about Marwyn is that he has, a, he has an ambiguous reputation. 
On one hand, he does seem more likable than the the stuffy, corrupt Archmaesters, the other Archmaesters. He's more widely read than they are, more widely traveled. He, there are moments he kind of feels like the Gandalf of the story, you know, this kind of wizardly figure who's always going around, talking to everyone, learning things. On the other hand, everything Marwyn is actually into sounds dangerous and dark. And it is a really bad sign that he took Kyburn under his wing. I mean, there's a case to be made that Kyburn is the scariest character in the Song of Ice and Fire. And then Marwyn's went, that's my guy. That's not a good sign. <laughs> like you said, put a pin in that for later. The point of it here is that Jamie doesn't get a clear answer as to whether or not those were actual ghosts. And my usual test for this kind of thing about whether a, a dream in a story is just a dream or something more supernatural is whether there's any information in there that the character doesn't possess. Like that, that great line from The Simpsons when, when uh, Homer has his, his wild psychedelic dream when he ate those chilies and he meets the, the Johnny Cash coyote who becomes his mentor. And then later when he's sober, he hears the, he hears the Johnny Cash coyote voice, find your soulmate, Homer, find your soulmate. And Homer goes, where, where? And the Johnny Cash Coyote says, this is only your memory. I can't give you any new information. That's my test. And this dream does not pass that test. Like everything in this dream could have come from Jamie's brain. There's nothing, nothing outside his awareness here. I think you hit on something, Menu, with, the, with the, the lingering power of the Weirwoods. I don't necessarily think Jamie was sent this vision. I think mm-hmm. the Weirwood power kind of just juiced up his subconscious. It, it took his normal dream machine and it put it on steroids. It's more vivid than it would have been otherwise, more powerful. And so it has more of an impact on Jamie, even if he was ultimately only talking to himself in there. Maybe more important than Jamie waking up from his dream is him waking up from sleepwalking through the last 19 years of his life. I've dreamt enough of this night, and he says, and sleep and rest, the last thing I mean to do. Jamie doesn't neatly map onto the Campbellian hero's journey, and I don't think he's meant to. But to borrow some phrasing, this is his call to action. He refused the call in his own way earlier this chapter, trying to dismiss his concerns about Brienne's fate as he did everything he could do, maybe she'll fight back, whatever, not my problem. But all that's gone now as the new Jamie wakes up. He has to go back, no matter how crazy everyone thinks his plan is. What I love is how Jamie convinces Steelshanks to go along with it. He weaponizes a phrase that's been used against his family, the refrain of Lannister's lie. Bolton said this to Brienne back in Jamie 5, and Oberyn asked Tyrion to spare him his Lannister lies in Tyrion 5. In a good old rule of three, Jamie now uses that adage to get what he wants. Kind of like how, he, how Tyrion says to turn insults into your own armor, Jamie turns the slight into a rhetorical sword. But this, of course, is also Jamie just flexing his class power over a man at arms like Steelshanks. With Tywin as the ultimate arbiter, Jamie can say whatever he wants to his dad and he'll be taken at his word, or near enough not to matter. So Steelshanks has to fall in line because he knows he's at the whims of the High Lords, who can just as easily kill him as reward him. But Jamie isn't that cruel. You gotta have some carrot to go with the stick. So once the topic of gold is broached, there's only one question left. How much? Yeah, this interaction really gave me shades of uh, an interaction you mentioned um, earlier, which is Jamie uh, in Feast and talking to Edmure Tully, uh, the whole trebuchet conversation, (laughs) um, which is another complicated scene and a very complicated arc. But I've always found it really interesting that George rescues Jamie from having to make good on that threat. Um, We don't know if he actually would have done it. Um, We we don't know if this is a case of Jamie, like saying, like, I'm going to do something horrible and I know I'm 
if I have to do it, I'll do it. Or is it a case of, you know, Lannister lies. Jaime is trading on his and his father's brutal reputation so that he won't have to commit those acts. Um, by the way, I don't think that ambiguity quite exists here. Um, but I do we know, like, I, I, I refer to, defer to the uh, <laughs> better read among us. Did, did still James Walton ever get his gold? He does mention it very briefly on his way out of town, but it's not lingered on because the, the bigger focus in that scene is that he's also taking Jane Poole. That who Jamie sees, we don't. She's not named as Jane, but she's named as as Arya Stark. And Jamie immediately goes, "Yeah, sure, okay, fine." <laughs> Jamie. So another reason to like Steel Shanks. <laughs> exactly, another reason to just love Steel Shanks. Yeah. And then Jamie tells Brienne, "Yeah, don't bother going after them. Don't rescue her. She's not Arya. Go for Sansa instead." Which I get why he does that, but there is something very callous even about that. Like that girl's not Arya, so she's not worth rescuing. Don't waste your time on her, even though she's just as innocent. And one of the thing, one of the things I like about Jamie's arc is that he's he's got this this growing desire to to regain his honor, to do the right thing. But his only means of doing so is to threaten, intimidate, and lie. Taking charge of his life means getting involved in politics. Jamie has to play the game instead of just trying to cut through the Gordian knot every time. And it's very telling that Jamie thinks of Tyrion in this moment because this is what Tyrion has always been good at. Look at how he wins Braun over in the first book, or Brown Ben Plum at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Jamie has never thought of himself as a political actor in this way, but Manu did a great job of pointing out in Jamie 5 how he was starting to play the game with Roos. And he'll have to keep playing once Tywin is dead and Cersei goes full Tony Montana. <laughs> he has to keep improvising an identity beyond being a warrior. And one thing I like what you're saying about Jamie's arc about his his desire to regain his honor, honor is that he actually takes time to think about what that actually means, like within systems of violence and what he's done. Um, I'm not saying he's quite regained it or anything, but at least it's not a lot of, you know, fantasy stories kind of just treat honor as kind of an undefined good virtue that we don't really interrogate with any meaning. Um, so I really like that's a really big part of why Jamie's one of my favorite characters. Jamie rides hard for Harrenhal, leaving his escort guard in his dust to catch up. One last time, the gravity of Great Heron's Keep draws Jamie in and sets him onto his next path. This is the site where he was made, where he was shamed, where he came when he was maimed, but here and now, the night that was broken will be remade. Sorry, I get a little bit poetic in these Jamie chapters. <laughs> the great storm ravaging Westeros creates a darkening void into which he rides, just like his dream. And just like in his dream, the great walls and towers of Harrenhal loom up black and ominous, a dead castle to match the dead men of his vision. High above, the black goat of Kohor lies limp, which you don't need a literary degree to understand that symbolism. We're basically in action movie mode here, Jamie shouting at the walls and trying to quickly figure out where Brienne is. But there's a couple blink-and-you'll-miss-it bits I really like. Jamie scarcely glances at the murder holes above him. I assume that's an instinctual reaction for a well-seasoned knight. But I think the more telling part is when he calls the mummers fools for assuming that they are still allies. Jamie may not know exactly what Roose Bolton is up to, but it's clear enough that he's cut his ties to Varga Hode and his companions, leave leaving them out to drive for Tywin to destroy. But for now, Jamie can take advantage of that trust to his own advantage. Jamie started this chapter talking about how Steelshanks Walton is a prototypical man-at-arms who will fall in line as needed at a lord's command. You can really see that playing out here. Walton saying, you know, go get your things and let's go, but Jamie quickly makes clear that this will be dangerous. Keep your swords about you. Jamie, who's used to telling people what to do, doesn't, doesn't even wait for Walton to acknowledge the command. He just whirls around and keeps up his search. 
And Walton, of course, will comply, because that's what men like him do. Laughter calls Jamie to the spot, the bear pit. George is likely calling out to the practice of bear baiting, which is usually pitting a bear against dogs in a pit similar to what is described here, or as seen in Game of Thrones Season 3. The blood sport was common to England, which it practiced from the 12th to 18th century before being officially outlawed in 1835 in the Cruelty to Animals Act. The Bear Garden sat in London on the River Thames for centuries. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I were huge fans, apparently. Shakespeare, too, refers to Sackerson, a famous fighting bear in his play The Merry Wives of Windsor. And while I'm always happy to point out the barbarism of the English, it should be noted that the cruelty and violence inflicted on bears, dogs, and other animals was protested by lots of folks at the time. It's something then that people also deemed cruel and unusual. It's not just our 2023 ethics saying so. The mummers are so focused on the bear and the maiden fair that Jamie's approach goes mostly unnoticed. Brienne is still in her pink mirish lace, once again being forced to perform her gender for these men who can't conceive of anything else. No armor, a ripped dress, a useless wooden sword. This paints a perfect picture of how the patriarchy works in war-torn Westeros. Never even great during peace, but as institutions and safety nets break down, there is no protection and no tools for those most oppressed. Yeah, I I really love the way you put that. Um, I also think you can kind of view this as a a sort of like both perversion of an attempted reinforcement of the so-called natural order um and bear baiting the victim is usually meant to be like you know the bear um (laughs) but uh, here the mummers are using this cruel practice kind of as a method of entertainment and execution um kind of similar to you know roman practices uh in the the good old days of the coliseum Um, um at the same time i kind of feel like there's an element of putting Brienne in her like natural again in quotes place um Vargo was obviously unable to overpower her sexually and his response is basically to put her in the weakest possible position um assuming that it will lead to her death he sets up a man woman versus nature conflict um with an as womanized as possible Brienne set up to be devoured by that natural order I totally agree they're they're mocking her a fake sword for a fake knight. Right after Jamie in his dream saw Brienne as both beauty and knight, the mummers are making fun of both. She challenged them, and they're having her torn apart to reassure themselves they don't have to take that challenge seriously. This is the cruelty Jamie has to directly confront. Instead of ignore and play along with, the dream reawakened him to moral responsibility. And while everyone else is making Brienne perform for her in the way they deem fit, Jamie, for the first time, is the one correcting everyone. He's correcting Steelshanks now. Her name is Brienne, not Wench, which actually works as a nice counterpiece to the internalized My Name is Jamie from his previous chapter. It doesn't take long for Jamie to go from realizing Brienne has a tourney sword to jumping down to go get her. So he did, writes George. Three words, an entire paragraph, and dripping with pure romance. No hesitation, no purple prose. Jamie wants to say Brienne, and that's exactly what he means to do. The bottom of the pit is covered in sand, just like the cave in his dream, like McCall said. He splashes down next to Brienne, just like she did in that same dream. Jamie is running on instinct here, as a soldier, as a beast, which Jorah tells us is in every man. He's just as much bear as his opponent, the ever-transient phrasing of bear and the maiden fair dancing between all three participants in the ring. Jamie admits he has no plan, that he's doing something stupid, but he's not without his wits. 
He even has time to correct Brienne. I'm Jamie, not Kingslayer. Jamie's real gambit is on Steelshanks and his armor. Feudal privilege, that is. If Jamie dies, then Steelshanks, the Mummers, everyone in a nuclear blast radius of Hall is going to live the head spikes wall lifestyle. <laughs> so Steelshanks obliges, saving the day as he and his men slay the bear, though not without pity from Jamie. The bear's only doing what it knows. Jamie shows us the two sides of his heart in conflict with itself again, both ribbing Brienne after her still being a maiden, but quick to correct Walton when he calls her wench yet again. <laughs> Clearly, Jamie has a quote of how many digs he needs to get in on Brienne each chapter, and he was just one short. Steelshanks is super pissed at Jamie back on the road. I can't tell if he's doing a cutesy pun about fighting a bear with bare hands, because Lord knows I would do that. <laughs> Jamie once again completely slices through both the feudal hierarchy and Roose Bolton specifically. Despite the hush hush nature, Jamie and Steelshanks know that Roose would flay the ever living shit out of him if Walton lost Roose's get out of jail card. Walton can only curse Jamie as they make for King's Landing. When Brienne asks him why he came back for her, we see some real growth from Jamie. He clearly is still Jamie Lannister. He came up with a dozen shitty things he could say in the moment. Jamie's change is a journey, one he's only started on, so don't be too hard on him. And yet, he couldn't end it more romantically. I dreamed of you. Truth, beauty, love. Jamie Hart's Brienne, XOXOXO, the OTP, now and forever. <laughs> Tell him all about it. And yeah, like you said, I, I love how simple it is. After all of Jamie's tortured self-examination, all his deflective sarcasm, it boils down to a simple question, asked by Vargo Hote of all people. Do you want her or not? Stop hiding in the shadow of the past. Go and get her. George is uh, ripping off Hey Jude here. If you want her, go out and get her. I think of uh, Paul McCartney howling at the end of that song as Jamie jumps. Better, better, ah! And he jumps. It's so romantic because he stopped lying to himself or anyone else. No irony detected here. He's putting his life on the line for someone who isn't Cersei. He's a true knight at last, saving the maiden from the beast. And then, because this is a song of ice and fire... George immediately runs that romanticism into a brick wall of realism. Jamie goes right from the Beatles to Anchorman. I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> As he tells Brienne, this is stupid, and he knows it. Just because he's demonstrated his chivalric love for her doesn't change the fact that they are now facing down a very angry bear with no weapons but the bones of the last person they threw in here. And yeah, I love that the only reason they survive that is because Jamie's just too important for Steelshanks Walton to let him die as a consequence of his own dumbass actions. And Jamie knows, yeah, they'll probably pull Brienne out of the pit along with me. It's a deeply cynical move done for the most idealistic of reasons. And that's Jamie and arguably a song of ice and fire in a nutshell. It's a nice touch that George makes us feel bad for the bear at the end here. None of this is its fault. It's a victim of the mummers as much as Brienne. It reminds me of that little bit in Return of the Jedi when, when Luke kills the Rancor monster, but we get that shot of Jabba's uh, animal wrangler guy as he cries over it. The ambiguity of Jamie Lannister persists to the very end of the chapter, which George just nails. Of course, Jamie still thinks of a bunch of insults he could tell Brienne. You don't erase those kind of social instincts overnight. But that makes his decision to be kind, to say something romantic, all the more powerful because it is a decision. It could have gone differently. He doesn't even tell Brienne the full story. He doesn't say, I had a nightmare about how my life is an empty void and you're the only genuine source of meaning I have left. He just says, I dreamed of you. Because that's not only romantic, it's 
it's true. In a way, it's more true than the literal explanation would have been. And that's enough for both of them. Yeah, not to sound like a broken record, but it, it really cannot be understated, uh, overstated, I'm sorry, uh, how effectively George executes this uh, most unlikely of romances. Um, I, I, I love that it is like an incredible blend of tropes followed and tropes sub- subverted. Yeah. Like you said, you know, the knight rescues the maiden from the bear and whisks her off to safety, but the maiden is also a knight, and the knight is barely a knight, and the <laughs> evil monster is not really the bear, it's the goat. And, you know, even the actual fight between Jamie and Brienne is kind of like, it, it, it's, or the rescue is more of a fight between them as to, like, who gets to protect whom. <laughs> um, Jamie even literally sweeps Brienne off her feet, Uh but in like a sweep the leg kind of way and like so that he can like stand over her and prevent her from standing in front of him as the bear charges um it's 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 amazing um and and yeah even you know the the rescue is is like really still Shanks Walton's it's it's neither neither of them like they don't they don't actually you know they don't win the day here um you know you guys I think have mentioned like through, through Jamie's chapters that kind of, this is kind of like a courtship in reverse. Um, you know, like their early sword fight is, is a very highly sexualized physical metaphor. Um, and Jamie's confession in the baths is a very, um, you know, deep emotional connection that ordinarily would serve as kind of the initial or, or middle bonding point. Um, and in that sense, I kind of like to read this as, as Jamie and Brienne's meet cute, like the dramatic happenstance that throws to, very different people together. Um, I think it's even it's even very like complete with almost Marvel esque quippy dialogue. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Something stupid. Like, <laughs> you know, I have the sword. It's not a sword. You know, like just, just they're 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 quipping back and forth in the middle of all this, and and I really see that as like very much like a meet cute, like the first time that sparks really fly between two people. Um, Obviously, with Jamie and Brienne, they've been flirting with blue fire for weeks now, um, if not in as quite a respectful and equal way as they do here. Um, and then I just love that, like, just before Jamie, it's easy to overlook. Like, I overlooked it, but, like, just before, uh, you know, Jamie comes out with one of the lines of the book, I dreamed of you, Brienne calls him Sir Jamie. And, like, I really tried to word search through my PDFs, but it really only works for one word at a time. So it didn't really work. Um, so I couldn't tell if, if this is like one of the first times that Brienne does this. She definitely refers to him as Sir Jamie before, but it might be the first time that she calls him that to his face. Um, and I think, you know, so if, if we go back to kind of like the real woman thing, uh, you know, Jamie is seeing Brienne for the first time, this real person in his life during the rescue. And I think we could also say that she's seeing him afresh, too. And yeah, they're, they're both kind of getting this this new start here out of out of the bear pit and into, you know, the, all the great stuff that happens next. Speaking of what happens next, getting into our foreshadowing and groundwork, Jamie thinks he can't be hurt so long as he has a sword. His demands for one are met with one at his feet. I gave you a sword, says his father, foreshadowing the soon-to-be-dubbed Oathkeeper. But at basically the same time as the sword materializes, so does Brienne. Nothing can hurt him so long as Brienne is there, his hand of justice, to whom he will give Oathkeeper to for her quest in A Feast for Crows. 
Yeah, that touches on something you were both talking about earlier about how Tywin really refuses to recognize what a big deal losing his hand was for Jamie and wants to just move on and gives him this sword, which Jamie treats as as mockery. And Uncle Kevon says, no, 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 that gift was very sincere. But, like, you know, Tywin is many things, but he's not stupid. Like, there's no... I, I think I think he's lying to himself when he's, he thinks that Jamie can really fight as well with the other hands. Really, that's come on, that's that's completely unreasonable. That sword is 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 there for Tywin to pretend that no change happened and that everything is going to go just how he wanted. And so, of course, yeah, Jamie treats that as as not an actual gift but a burden. He he gives it to someone who can use it, but he also gives it to someone who who deserves it. And I think that's a, a beautiful parting moment for them at the end of this book. Then moving into theory and discussion. After the dream sequence, Jamie puzzled about where exactly the cave or the dark space was. Was he below the rock? Or was it perhaps somewhere he has not yet been or seen? Perhaps some future encounter with Stoneheart and the Brotherhood or the others up north? So those dark figures and this dark space and this fight for his life with Brienne, what do you guys think this might pretend? I mean, I don't I don't necessarily want to go with like the show line of where everyone ends up, but like I can't, I can't shake the similarity between like, this is your place, this underground place that is like, you know, womb and tomb like, like, and, and to the crypts of Winterfell, like that, the, the, the resonance there kind of speaks to me. And I, I don't know, I don't know if it means he might end up up north, but maybe it's, it's a tough one because like I was saying earlier, I don't, I don't think that this is direct foreshadowing in the way that stuff in the house of the undying is or the stuff that brand dreams about but it's yeah that the, the the similarities to the stuff going beyond the wall is hard to ignore because uh like manu was saying they're described as being armored in snow a lot like the white walkers and you know fighting in a dark space with a fiery sword that sure sounds like the long night and the azora high symbolism with lightbringer but on the other hand yeah that i mean a lot of this could also apply to stoneheart like stoneheart is also the vengeful dead like these 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 ghosts that come to confront jamie jamie and brianna are, are being brought to a position where they're both prisoners of stoneheart the last time we checked in with these characters so that suits them as well so i think it it could refer to either or both Jamie going north with Brienne makes sense logistically. I'm not sure how that works out with him eventually going back to Cersei, which of course is the kind of thing that's that's leading George to to take 10,000 years to write it. Who knows, of course, if he wants to make that happen, then he'll make that happen. But I think it's interesting that he's kind of conflating the two in this dream, that confronting Stoneheart is kind of the same thing as confronting the White Walkers, that they're both this the sense of an unquiet dead and something coming up from the crypt, something being reborn, which I like. I like that George casts rebirth as something that can be the best thing or the worst thing depending on what you do with it and what it's for like uh, metaphorical rebirth is great literal rebirth is horrible (laughs) and so it's he's kind of pushing those two up against each other in this dream and that's interesting what do you think manu yeah, I like what you're saying about how whether it's the White Walkers or the Brotherhood and stuff, um, they both kind of can stand in for the same thing. And I think they both just represent kind of endgame for Jamie. And the most important part of that is that yeah. he's with Brienne for it. Um, prior to the show, I never really pictured Jamie making it up north or maybe even surviving into A Dream of Spring. Like, I felt like the Winds of Winter, like near the end of it, might be a great place for Cersei and Jamie to get their exit from the story. 
Um, so I always thought that this might be foreshadowing for the Brotherhood. Um, I don't know what kind of knowledge the Game of Thrones showrunners were running with, with Jamie running up north, but I always kind of viewed that as kind of like a great sense for Jamie's story, if not for him to die, but kind of like really kind of ending his arc. And then from there, whatever happens with Cersei follows shortly after. Um, and there's definitely a scenario where you can imagine Jamie and Brienne fighting off the remainder of the Brotherhood, trying to escape, picking up perhaps Thoros's flaming sword that he drops when I don't want to think about him <laughs> dying. But like, you know, th th there's all sorts of ways that imagery plays as well into the Brotherhood and Lady Stoneheart, like you said, as it does with the others. Yeah. And I think something that, um, I mean, the throne show suffered from a little bit was like having characters do things and be in places where, you know, it it was satisfying on a superficial, like, cool character with other character doing cool thing, but it wasn't satisfying on a thematic level. And like, I don't want to say that it can't be satisfying for Jamie to be in the North, but thematically, like, it's just very different from the rest of his story and kind of where most of his trials are. I mean, I guess you could connect it to Bran, you know, going going back to the scene of the crime, which, I mean, to, to talk about the big, like, elephant in the room is personally the thing I think he needs to confront and, and actually apologize for um, and regret because he never thinks about it once, not even in his best moments. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I feel like thematically it would, at this point in time, I can, I view it a little bit as a little off color. Um, as opposed to him being down south and meeting whatever Daenerys related and we're not is down there. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to give up the idea of him taking out Cersei before she can set off the wildfire. That's just too perfect in terms of like the relationship to Eris. And then the horrible irony of then if Danny sets it off anyway. <laughs> Like that's 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 really great, but yeah, I mean, we've been saying how what a complicated Jamie, what a complicated character Jamie is, how his story has changed over time, and that's part of it. Like you know, I I would bet that Jamie had what's going to happen to Danny and what's going to happen to John in mind from the very beginning. Uh, I but Jamie George has said straight up that he had cha has changed this character over time, and he's he's evolved in a way that maybe his ending is more open and fluid at this point in the writing process. And that fits his character too. As he says at the end of this book, he can write whatever he chose henceforth, whatever he chose. And that goes for George too. So I think that's going to wrap us up for our episode on Storm of Swords, Jamie Six. McCall, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I was so happy you wanted to come on for it and uh, just a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I, I love discussing. I love listening to your podcast. And I love getting to, to chime in in person too. So uh, thanks to everyone for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get early access to our regular episodes, bonus episodes, multiple bonus episodes every month, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. We are actually covering Secession over in our Lord of the Rings podcast, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. So if you like to fuck off with the Roys, I would recommend checking that one out. The, the Lannister show, Succession. I basically think of it as like a reskinned Lannister fanfic, where basically the Lannister children are teaming up against Daddy Tywin. I love it. I love that. Mikhail, where can people uh, find your stuff online? Uh, yeah, well, I haven't seen Succession, but I have heard it like house of the dragon described as 
Succession with Dragons. So I'm like a little more interested. Basically. Um, that was how I got one of Basically. my to watch it. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Ink as Rain for now. Um, and um, <laughs> if you want to find more well of uh, my work, well you can check out The Dragon Prince on Netflix. Season 5 is coming out this summer. Yeah, that's so great. Can't that's wait. Great. Can't wait to watch. That's wonderful. All right, so for us, uh, I have a, one of my next uh, one of my Star Wars episodes coming up next week for all our five dollar and above patrons. My final episode on Revenge of the Sith, and then after that, next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, we're up to A Storm of Swords, Catalan Five, in which Rob and his followers make their long, depressing trip in the rain to the twins. But hey, at least there's a good party waiting for him. Yeah, there's gonna be lots of wine. Lots of wine and terrible, terrible food. Can't wait for that. And we're going to be joined by another guest for that episode, our friend Pat, who has come on before for one of my uh, Star Wars episodes, but he's going to be joining us on the main cast for the first time. That's going to be great. So that's going to be in a couple weeks' time. So uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks again to Miguel for joining us. And we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Catalan 5. <laughs>